of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Malibu and Silver Lake, Aloe was created by our very good friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. They created it as a place to treat addiction with connection and compassion rather than control. They have decades and decades and decades of combined experience in treating mental health co-occurring disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as it possibly can be, which of course is critical when you're kicking dope or benzos or alcohol or even crack cocaine. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, surfing, equine therapy, and the super spiritual sweat lodge. If I was going to look for a place to go get treatment, I would go to Aloe in a heartbeat, and you should too. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at CASL, which of course stands for Clean and Sober Love, the dating app for people who choose a sober way of life. It was created by one addict helping another addict to date safely. So here's the deal. You got clean, you got sober, you got a new life, and now you're ready to date. So where are you supposed to look? The ramble at Central Park? CASL is the solution. Dating and recovery is definitely real and worth considering if your own shit is together. CASL is the platform where you can meet like-minded junkies, crackheads, and alcoholics all over the world. Install the app now on the App Store or on the Google Play Store. And by the way, it is completely, absolutely fucking free. Put your profile up on CASL and see all the addicts that you can meet around the world. It is a time of quarantine. It is a time of isolation. Don't let that get the better of you. Make some connections with some other addicts looking for love. 
C-A-S-L. It is free. It is available at the App Store and the Google Play Store. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power and the passion of the Dopey Patreon. We have a new Patreon thing happening. There is a paywall. Uh, The price structure has changed yet again. Two bucks, you get all the episodes. Five bucks, you get all the episodes, plus the Dopey Patreon Zoom, which starts tomorrow night, just in time for Rosh Hashanah. And if you want to be part of the exclusive $10 Patreon Club, you get early access to one Dopey episode every month, so there will be five full-length Dopey episodes in a month. You will also get a free pack of stickers and entitled to every new Dopey sticker that comes out. That is only for super fans of the show. Also, we have amazing gear available at dopeypodcast.com. I found a shitload of dopey beanies in my garage. Venmo me for those. 20 bucks each should cover it. Uh, Our partner, SRO Prince, who are all recovering heroin addicts, have some new stuff coming out. I think you will be pleasantly surprised, as was I. Dopeypodcast.com. Get the dopey gear. Enough with the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, and I am Dave, and I'm in my attic, and autumn is upon us. It's a beautiful thing. If you didn't know, at the beginning of the episode, I played some music. It is uh, from Toots and the Maytals. The song is called 5446, That's My Number, and uh, Toots Hibbert was the lead singer and songwriter in Toots and the Maytals, and he died this week. He was 77 years old. Um, they're thinking he died, uh, with complications from COVID, but, uh, I love Toots and the Maytals and I've always, I've loved Toots and the Maytals as long as I can remember. They were actually the band that invented the word reggae with their 1967 classic, do the reggae. Uh, I loved, I mean, I can't tell you how much Toots and the Maytals has meant to me since I was a teenager, uh, sweet and dandy off of the harder they come soundtrack, fucking bam, bam. You know, oh, my God. Um, They do Take Me Home, Country Roads, So Good, Funky Kingston, Sailing On. If Dopey was a music show instead of a podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, I would play you a bunch of Toots and the Maytals song right now. I loved Funky Kingston so much when I first heard it. I want to say when it first came out, but it came out like 30 years before I ever heard it. But it just so funky, so soulful. Just amazing Jamaican music at its best. And when Todd died, I would hear this song, 5446 was my number, with that intro. And he said, it's about a, basically about a guy who gets arrested on the street for having weed in his pocket. And the cop says, stick it up, mister, uh, to Toots. And Toots sings that. And it always reminded me of Todd. And I always wanted to start a show with this song because when i hear it it gives me the chills todd loved toots and the maytals almost as much as i did and uh and the world is a much worse place without either of them in it so rest in peace toots hibbert you are a pioneer and a legend in other news i don't know if you guys remember that linda and i have been participating in this tournament the suburban paddle tournament called Procadema. 
I, I'm pretty sure I told you that I was winning the tournament last we spoke. We closed the tournament last week, and um, we won. Linda and I won the whole fucking thing. And we weren't doing good either. One couple got up. They were doing amazing. I was like, we're fucked. And night is, is closing in on us. It's hard to see. We're using a green ball that matched the grass. And Linda and I start practicing, and we're doing terribly. And, all, and, and the last match, all the couples did it with their actual partner. So I'm watching all these couples succeeding at Procadema, and I'm thinking, Linda and I aren't even a good couple. We, we're doing terrible. And then we replace the green ball with the yellow ball. We step into the part of the grass that has light, and we get to 194, blowing, smoking the competition. We won. It's over. We've won Procadema. It's over. So I'm very, very pleased with being the king of the suburbs. Who would have thought that could happen to me? Who would have thought that a Jewish heroin addict in recovery would blow out all of these drunken Irish men and women to destroy them at their own game, showing up out of the clear blue sky and stealing their thunder. And what is the prize? Basically nothing. Basically me bragging about it on Dopey is the prize. Supposedly there's going to be some sort of parade, but we'll see if that ever happens. I also heard there was going to be a custom-made Procadema winning t-shirt, but I doubt that. But me bragging and boasting is all the thanks that I need. They said I was uncoordinated, they called me a city dweller. They made fun of my big nose and track marks. But who's laughing now, suburbanites? Who's laughing now? I want to say something serious now before we get to this incredible interview that we got to do or that I got to do this week, which is like, this is a very stressful time in the world. Kids are going back to school. Kids are learning at home. Politics are looming big. The West Coast is on fire. It is a stressful time. So if you are in recovery or you are a drug addict or you're just a normie who likes dopey, take a deep breath. Give yourself a break. Tomorrow can be a better day. Make today better. Have some chocolate. Have a cup of tea. Put some sugar in your coffee and celebrate that you're alive today. We need to wear life like a loose garment and enjoy as much as we can or else what the fuck is the point? I'm very excited about today's guest. He's a guy I've been trying to get on the show literally for months uh, his name is Tank Sinatra. He has a gigantic Instagram page, Instagram following. He does his own Tank Sinatra page. He also does another Instagram page called Tank's Good News. Um, he came over, actually. He sat in the garage with me. Oh, yeah, he also has Influencers in the Wild. So totally check out Tank Sinatra on Instagram. He was really a joy to have in the garage. I was like Mark Marin in the garage. And here it is, Tank Sinatra from the garage. I'm with... A very, very, very big human <laughs> in reality and in the internet, Mr. Tank Sinatra. You might even say I, I look like a tank. You, is that where the name came from? Kind of. Don't you think dank recovery memes should have just been dank Sinatra as a, as a, as a uh, tribute? So dank Sinatra already is taken. Who took it? I don't know, but I remember looking for dank Sinatra. And it was you taken. You wanted Dank Sinatra. I wanted Dank Sinatra, and then Tank Sinatra without the dot was taken, and uh, I just made Tank Dot Sinatra, and that was it. It was an, it was like a, a nickname that I grew into. Tell me how. It, it, usually, other people give you nicknames. Every time, like every time, I would people would ask me, "What, what do I call you, Tank or George?" I would say, "Well, I, every time I would think of that Seinfeld episode where George." 
mostly because of the name, the relationship between our names, wanted people to start calling him T-Bone. Yes. And they just started ripping on him, and then they started calling him Coco. So, like, I felt kind of like I did th- did that, but I won. Like, he lost, and I won. You got the tank. I got the tank Sinatra, yeah. My mom started calling me tank. My wife's friends tank. My friends from, you know, long before I was tank Sinatra called me tank. And because you were always, like, big. I was always big. Yeah, 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 I was always big. Ever since... I was like 13, 14. I started working out because I was a fat kid. And this, this guy, I used to hang out with older kids when I was a kid. I was like 11 or 12. These kids were like 15, 16, 17. This one guy goes, if you get, I forget what word he used. He didn't say swole or, or jacked. It was like before swole or jacked were, was the word. Ripped? No, something, something, something I can't remember. But he goes, if you get jacked, by next summer, I'll take you around in my car and we'll drive around in a convertible. And I was like, let's go. And then I saw Pumping Iron and I was like, let's double go. I'm getting fucking jacked. And I was just tired of being fat. So I got, didn't get less fat. I just got bigger. So my bigness kind of like overshadowed my fatness, if that makes any sense. It does. Well, you look incredibly ripped. Do you enjoy all the work? Yeah. I mean, I can't not do it now. If I don't do it now, this took place when I was like, this took hold, I mean, when I was like 17 or 18. If I don't work out, I feel very bad. See, I've gotten to the point, I've never been in shape. This is basically the closest to in shape that I've ever been. Uh-huh. And I don't know, months ago I had this dude on the show who's like all about fitness. Yeah. He owns, uh, you know, the meatball shop in Manhattan? No. Nah, fuck it. He owns Seymour's. He owns the meatball okay. shop. There's a restaurateur named Michael Chernow, and he's like fucking... I've heard of him. He's like Mr. Fitness ripped. He's like, before he before anything in his life is fitness. Yeah. You know, before restaurant touring, before recovery. I don't want to say before his family, but maybe before his family. Yeah. He's like, and I'm like, damn, I want to get fit. I want it to happen. So we're about to run something called the Dopey Fitness Challenge. Okay. And in the Dopey Fitness Challenge, the idea is that I will get fit, and I will try to get someone to train me, and I will bring the Dopey Nation along to get fit. But like when I every morning I get on my, on my I lie down and I do push-ups. I now I'm at I'm at seventy-five push-ups a day and two hundred sit-ups a day. But that's th- good. But that's all I do. Yeah. And I hate it. I like start fucking pushing the floor. I want to kill myself. Yeah, you know it's like push-ups uh, are rough. Push-ups are. I mean, you got to be a special kind of psycho to do push-ups every day. It's all I do. What, yeah. What should I be? What do you do that you like? I I got a, I got some stuff in my house. I used to go to the gym. I used to go to the gym, and I would go for not nothing crazy like forty-five minutes, an hour, and um, lift weights. Just kind of bounce around and work against gravity. That's how I thought of it. Nothing. I, I didn't do anything special. I just never stopped going. Like I'm a big believer in the cumulative effect of anything. So if you work out every day for 25 years, obviously, like there's ways to shortcut that. But I would run it to people who'd ask me how often, you know, how long I spend in the gym, and I'd say 45 minutes an hour, and they'd be like, "No way." And in my mind, what they were saying was. That's not possible because one time 10 years ago, I went to the gym for three months for two hours a day and, and I, I didn't get in shape. Yeah, it's like that, that's not how it works. You can't. So what you're saying is 45 minutes to an hour a day yeah. every day. That's more than enough. More than enough. 45 minutes, if you're working, is a long time. If you're like when people put out those, those exercise tapes or exercise programs like seven minute whatever – 
it sounds too good to be true until you do it and you're at minute two and a half and you're fucking dead. Right. And then you got another four and a half minutes. You ever do those things? I've tried a couple. I've tried like P90X and yeah. um, it's just, I mean, it's <laughs> too hard. I don't want to work that hard. It's so hard. I really don't. I want to go work against gravity, work against myself, move my muscle, move my body, move my blood around my body. And that's it. And then be done with it. Now, the, nobody, nobody wants to hear me talk about fitness, but I have more questions. I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm going to ask a couple more questions. It's now, an important part of my recovery. All right. Big time. Um, let me ask you this. Sure. When you're working out, right, yeah. are you enjoying it or do you enjoy the fact that you know this works? Like when you're actually in the hour, like how do you find pleasure in that? Um, I don't really work out. I, I enjoy the workout. I don't really work out for results so much anymore. You do enjoy the process. I do enjoy the process. What do you enjoy about it? Um, I enjoy knowing that I'm taking care of myself. That's what gets me through. I I, I mean, I haven't had a hard work. I haven't had a tough workout in probably 20 years where I was just like, oh, man, I can't, you know, I can't seem to get going. And I think that's because um, if I go to the gym and I'm just not feeling it, I'll just leave. Like, I have no qualms about walking into the gym and walking right out. Because you know you'll be back. Exactly. You exactly. know, you, I mean, if I walk out of the gym... <laughs> I'm never coming back. <laughs> not only that, but if I don't do the push-ups, yeah. I get the feeling, if I don't do it today, I'm not going to do it tomorrow. Yeah. You know, if I, if I stop doing it now, it's not going to happen. So I'm like, I make sure I do it. And also, like, I've just... If I'm not commuting, I'm at home. Like, I, I went... I did keto, okay? Mm-hmm. I did keto from... January to March, and I lost like 30 pounds. It's a lot. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Yeah. And I was fucking, I was so about it. Yeah. And then I got, I got COVID March mm-hmm. 13th. I got sick as hell. Yeah. And I started eating again immediately. I gained 25 pounds back the first month. Yeah. Because I, I, I couldn't restrict everything and be stuck at home. Yeah. It just was, I can't, I can't do it. Yeah. And now I'm stuck at home. Like I haven't started commuting again. Uh-huh. I work from my attic usually. And I'm like, I got to get in shape. What am I doing to be stuck at home and not getting in shape? So that, that's my plan. Yeah. I just like the feeling of, of pushing myself forward. Not pushing myself like in a workout. Not that I work out so aggressively that I'm like, yeah, dude, you, you kicked ass today. But just knowing that I'm taking care of myself. That's why I feel like um, it doesn't take much to get the feeling like you're at least on the right path. It you're takes, doing something. It may, takes maybe three days for me to feel like, all right, I'm, I'm heading in the right direction. And then my self-esteem comes along with it. Right. I love that. I love that. Self-esteem plus results plus process means that something good is happening. Yeah, the results, I mean, it's, uh, you know, cliche to say, but they take care of themselves if you... If you do it. If you enjoy the process. But it's the same as recovery, which is... Yeah. It's, and it's the same as podcasting. Yeah. And it's probably the same as meme making. Anything. Yeah. Everything is exactly the same. Yeah. You do it enough, you're going to get good at it. Yes. And you're going to see the results. And if you stop doing it, you'll never see results. And if you stop everything that you're bad at the first time you try it, you never get anywhere. And that's something that I had to learn pretty early on. Yeah, I like... I'm like a mediocre musician. Like, I barely tried writing. Like, I, I've done so little of everything. Like, yeah. I got so into getting high, like, that that supplanted everything. Like, course, I wanted to yeah. be a talk show host. I wanted to be a television producer. I wanted to be this. I wanted to be that. 
And then I like discovered drugs and I was like, holy shit, I really like this. This is all that stuff in one. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> all I have to do is buy drugs and use them. It's yeah. amazing. Um, cause you were working out when you, for, when you were imbibing, like when you were using, like, yeah. how did, what was the first time you got high? First time I got high. Or drunk. Um, I mean, there's a, a long history of experimentation beforehand. Like the first time I, I took a sip of a drink, I was probably five or six. Okay. Because it was just around in the house. And I vividly remember one drink. There was, I'm sorry, there's two drinks that I remember. One is, and you would think at this point, a normal person would say, this is bad. I'm not going to do this anymore. I drank a beer bottle that had cigarettes in it. Ugh. At the end of whatever, one of the parties that I was outside, I took a sip of it, got smashed with that, that flavor, which is horrific. <laughs> and then the second time was, a mar- I guess it was a martini because it was a water, it was a, a, a clear glass with clear liquid in it and it had olives in it. And I was like, oh shit, I like olives. I'm going to take a sip of that. I took a sip of it, blasted me in the face with that, that hot burning sensation and then I smoked a cigarette when I was like eight. My parents smoked, so I smoked a cigarette. And then I was, then I got a little scared because my mom had told me my whole life that my dad, you know, is an alcoholic. You're going to be an alcoholic. You got to be careful. And I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't. Obviously, I was so young. I thought drinking and driving was bad because you lift your head when you drink. Because <laughs> you like wouldn't I, be looking at the road. Exactly. You're your head back. Like, but but the fact that I was thinking about why drinking and driving is bad is indicative of what kind of environment I was in. So the first time I got drunk was when I was 13 and I got blackout drunk. First time I ever drank, I had like 15, 14 drinks, which is why when I read about the allergy in the doctor's opinion, I was like, yep, that makes, that makes sense. There's no other reason for a human being to drink that many drinks their first time unless the phenomenon of craving is awakened. Immediately, though. Immediately. It's interesting because the first time I drank... I was a little bit older, but the exact same thing happened. Yeah. And I just read the doctor's opinion this morning. So. Yeah. And, like, I'm, I'm reading it with my first sponsee, you know, my first actual... I mean, I have a sponsee that I kind of deal with on the phone, but yeah. first time face-to-face, whatever, and we're talking about the phenomenon of craving and, um, and the allergy. And, yeah. like, I was never a big drinker, and here I am in... in I don't even like to say that I'm in AA on the podcast, but here yeah. I am in AA and talking about the allergy... And I didn't go on to become a prodigious alk- drinker. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But it still was the same allergy, right? Oh, yeah. It's interesting. I think there's different wiring in our brains. I really do. I think that we're more sensitive to whatever releases dopamine. Because So my, I took my son to the dentist uh, last week. How old was your son? He's seven. Okay. And he got sweet air. Yes. So Is that a Long Island thing to say sweet air? Because they don't what, say sweet air in Manhattan. What do they say? Laughing gas? Yes. Yeah, yeah, whatever. It's either, maybe sweet air was what they called it when I was a <laughs> That's kid. That's what my wife says. Sweet <laughs> But, dude, I, talked, I just talked to my wife about this. <clears throat> I remember being seven years old, eight years old maybe, getting the sweet air and getting high off my fucking ass. I felt in the dentist chair like I was falling through the sky, flipping head over foot, and I didn't care what they did. It's the ultimate I have arrived. Exactly. I was like, whoa, <laughs> what was that? So when I asked my son how he felt, Uh-oh. he said, I, I don't know. I didn't really feel anything. You were like, thank fucking Thank God. God. Because I think what happens is I had a, a procedure where I needed to get laughing gas because it was like so intense. So I was like, just like a tiny bit. 
because I don't want to like be coming back here every week for different procedures. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. And um, and I got like a little loopy again. And I remember thinking when I was a kid, this happened, and I didn't tell anybody about it because I thought that if I told them, then they wouldn't let me do it again. Right. And I think that. There's, there was the first bit of isolation right there. There was the first bit of me thinking I'm different than other people. Because if I, like, there's no way that anybody has ever felt that before. First time I got drunk, the first, same thing happened. I got so drunk and I got so comfortable that I felt like if, if I tell anybody how good I feel, they're going to not let me do it anymore. But I scared myself. So I didn't drink again for another year after that. And I got invited to a party <clears throat> and... I, I'm so stupid because I, I, it was around the time that like Juice and Menace to Society oh, yeah. and Boys in the Hood was going on. It's a great time to be alive. So I went and my, I forgot who bought me this stuff, but I was like, I want to get a 40 because like, I want to be black sure. really bad. Yeah. So then I was like, I don't want to get two 40s because two 40s is too much. So what did I do? I got five 22 ounce, <laughs> which is obviously more if you're not an idiot like I was. Drank all of them, blacked out, threw up. And then I scared myself again, so I didn't drink again for another two years. Then when I started drinking when I was 17, I was like, I guess this is just the way it is. Like, this is the way I drink. Now, before we go any further, yeah. Juice, Boys in the Hood, or Menace to Society? What's the call? If I, I mean, gun to my head, all things considered, all criteria considered, Menace to Society. Absolutely. Yeah. Menace to Society, the scene where they make the crack. Yeah. Do you remember how they shot the scene? It's like the, and the, the burner pops up. It's and it, the best. It is a beautiful movie. It's the best movie. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, I just watched Boys in the Hood. Yeah. Boys in the Hood is a quality movie. Different, though. It's schmaltzier. It's more heart, like heart-wrenching when Ricky gets shot yeah. at the end, like, you know, Ice Cube. It's more, uh, I don't know how to just... Uh, um, it's, it's, it pulls the heartstrings. It's super schmaltzy. It does. Menace to society. Juice made me want to be black. I never saw Juice. Juice with... Uh, with Tupac. You know, with Tupac and the, the DJ where he's spinning at that party and he's spinning Know the Ledge by Eric B. and Rakim, one of the greatest <clears throat> songs of all time. He's scratching it. That movie made me want to be black. Boys in the Hood made me glad I wasn't black <laughs> because of what, what they go yeah, through. The Menace to Society made me scared to be black. Like, that's, that's the way I would describe those three movies. I, I love... And, and also, you're from Long Island. Yeah. I was from Manhattan. You know, West Coast, Compton, all that stuff. It's like... So the, intriguing. And it's the most far-removed thing from the reality out here. Yeah. You know, it's just like... It's such... I mean, all the subcultures in California are just... So interesting because New York isn't like that. New York isn't as divided, I don't think. Well, New York is kids, right? You know, which I saw with my mother in the movie theater, which was a huge mistake. Terrible idea. Huge. I was like, I was the drug addict who like <laughs> didn't. I hung out with like I went to nerdy school and I hung out with my friends in the house and I didn't do drugs till much later. So I missed. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So we're, let's get back to the story, though. Okay. 17, 18. Yeah. Uh, drinking 22s, fucking, and this is how it is. Drinking, well, I hated the taste of beer. Hated it. Like, I don't know how I became an alcoholic because I hate the taste of alcohol so much. But I love the results, which going back to, you know, we were talking about working out. It's like I love the results so much more than the process that I was willing to go through the process to get the results. But I started off when I was 17 drinking hard cider. 
because I couldn't stomach beer. Couldn't I couldn't taste. I couldn't ha- handle the taste of it. So bitter. So I remember saying to my mom when I was about seventeen, I would go out with my friends and we would go and I would get twelve because I was bigger. So I figured I needed more. They'd go all get their six packs. And I would finish all 12 of mine, then wind up drinking the last two or three of theirs because they would never finish their six-pack. So, like, there was just never enough for me right away. And I remember saying to my mom, who had told me I was going to be an alcoholic my whole life, runs on my dad's side of the family. It's, you know, something to be careful of. I said, Mom, I, I think, like, I think I have a problem. I, I just don't think I drink like the other kids that I'm drinking with. And she goes, <laughs> she goes uh, well, when you start, do you feel like you can't stop? And I said, yeah. Yeah, I can't stop unless I run out or, or, you know, something happens. And she goes, when you drink, do you ever, like, totally forget what happens when you drink? Like, the next day, can you not remember? She goes, that's a blackout. I said, yeah, it's a, that, that's what happens every time. She goes, you'll probably be fine. Just be careful. No, she did not. I swear to God. Wait, is, like, she, is she an alcoholic or no? No, but I think that at that point... How does she take you through these questions? She gets the... I mean, like, what would have been the answer where she said, she, you think you have a problem? I think that no matter what I said, because that's part of the problem with families and alcoholics and whatever, like, uh, not to get too far off topic, that's, I don't really believe in the word enabler. I don't think that's a real thing. I think that addicts and alcoholics are going to do what they're going to do, and either you get fucking, either you get to come with them or you don't. Like, there's no enabling. You didn't need to enable me. So I think that at that point, she wasn't willing to admit that her son was an alcoholic. So she was kind of like, just keep an eye on it. But it was only a few years later that I was, uh, I was at rock bottom and ready to, ready to change. It just got worse from there. You got sober when you were 22. Yeah. Which is like a kind of like built in resentment for me. Cause I got sober when <laughs> I was, when I was 41. <laughs> but, um, the question is, um, what was the worst it got? You know, like, cause obviously something has to, has to happen for you to be like at 22. Yeah. I need to turn my will and life over to the care of God. You know yeah. I mean? Like what happened? So, you know, from experience that it's not typically one thing that happens. It's not like a big sure. supernova it's every, it's of consequences. It's, it's just like a cumulative effect of being worn down and thinking that this is not going to get any better. I had a moment of honesty. So the last time I drank, I did drink from 7 in the morning till about 4 in the morning, so like almost 24 hours straight, and my little sister was with me. I was on a trip at, uh, for this restaurant I worked at. We went to Great Adventure. We started I mean, restaurant people drink, and they know how to make strong drinks that don't taste strong. So we started drinking at 7. We got back to Huntington at about 7 p.m., and, I, and my sister was like, all right, you know, let, you know let's go, and I was like... <laughs> Let's go where? We're going across the street. So we went across the street, and as each hour went by, she got more and more upset until I finally sent her home in a cab in like, at like 2 a.m. And uh, she was upset, and my mom, the next day, I, I blacked out. I came home. You know, I woke up the next day at like 2 o'clock or whatever. And my mom goes, you sent your sister home in a cab at 2 a.m. because you had two hours left to drink? She goes, you either got to stop drinking today or get out of the house tonight. So that was the consequence. <clears throat> that was the, yeah, that was the catalyst. Because it, 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 it wasn't a consequence yet. I had had other consequences. I remember when I first came in, somebody said, what's the worst thing that ever happened while you were drinking and how soon after that were you drinking? And I remembered one New Year's Eve Eve, so December 30th, I went out, came home, and I had a habit of like coming home and stealing cars, like stealing my mom or sister's or dad's car. I would just grab whatever keys I could grab. So I grabbed the keys... Went to this girl's house. 
started driving back at about 5.30 in the morning. There was a sleet, like, ice storm, and I was on the northern state, and I went off the road, and I crashed into a tree. And I drank that night. I drank less than 12 hours later because it was New Year's Eve. But it wasn't you weren't drunk. It was the sleet. Exactly. It was, it was yeah, the film of ice on the road. The, exactly. it, wasn't, it wasn't the alcohol. But if, I mean, if my foot was depressed an extra three quarters of an inch on that accelerator, I don't, you know, I might not be sitting here. If I right. was going an extra 20, 30 miles an hour, I wouldn't be here. Um, so there was just, there was a lot of those little things. Like I got kicked out of college. I got expelled from University of Maryland for doing drugs. I got caught doing drugs. I got put on probation. They, they were drug testing me. I knew they were going to drug test me. I couldn't stop. What were you doing? Um, At that point, I was smoking a lot of weed. I was doing moderate amounts of cocaine because I had no money, so whenever it was around, I would do it. And any pill, I could get my hands on anything. Except for Vicodin. Vicodin made me sick, and I couldn't take it. I would throw up immediately. It's a lot of acetaminophen, I think, in the Vicodin. Yeah. Um, Did you have any kind of pill issue or, like... Oh, yeah. what What was your pill of choice? So at the end... I was like a, a 60s housewife. I was taking Valium all the time. I love Valium, too. And I remember getting... Uh, my parents were away, and we had a party at my house. And I woke up one day. I had to go to work. I worked at this restaurant that I had, you know, the the, uh, the event at. I don't remember if I had stopped drinking before or after this, because I quit, I quit drinking, and then I kept doing other stuff. But no, I def- this was definitely before that, because I quit everything except for smoking pot when I came into the rooms. But I woke up, and I liked pills because I could get one in my mouth before I even had a chance to think about it, before I had a chance to figure out if this was not a good idea. So I would I put it in my mouth, went back to bed, woke up, went outside, smoked pot with everybody, went inside, showered, went outside, smoked pot with everybody, and then panicked because it was like 3 o'clock, and I was like, oh, my God, I got a shower. And they were like, you just showered. And I had to feel my hair to see if it was wet to know whether or not I showered. Like I was, so it wasn't consequences. I was just, my sense of self was eroding away. And it was like the, um, it's like a slow grinding away of your, your soul that I think brings you to like a true bottom, not a, you know, you better do this or that. My mom saying that to me didn't, I don't even know if she would have kicked me out of the house that night, but the fact that she brought it to me in such terms let me know that maybe I was missing something. Well, also, I think finally she wasn't comfortable with where you were about to go. Yeah. She knew where you were about to go, and yeah. she didn't like it. And yeah. she's like, okay, well, maybe I can actually do something about this now. Yep. Or at least I'm not having it here. Yeah. You know, and enabling is it's an interesting concept that there are no such thing as enablers. And, and either somebody is, like, present and helpful in the drug addict's yeah. life, or they're not, and yeah. the drug addict keeps going. Yeah. Because your point is that when a drug addict is not enabled, they find a way to keep using. Of course. Right. If they want to. So in your situation, though, it was more like the soul. You're, you were done. Yeah. You, just, you were like, what the fuck is this? I just knew that it wasn't going to get any better. I just knew that every... I did a quick inventory of my drinking history, and I realized that things were getting bad quick. They were getting worse quick. It was like... You know, the things that were happening that were bad were intensifying, and the rate at which they were happening was accelerating. And I was like, this is not going to end well. And I didn't want to die. I didn't want to live the way that I was living either, though. So it was like, you have a choice now. And I called my uncle, who, uh, who was sober for like 15 years at the time. And he was like, you know, 
saying your parents are alcoholic or your sibling is very tough. Uncle is like no problem. Alcoholic uncle, sure. Uncle yeah. John is an alcoholic. Yeah, uncle, that's very helpful. Exactly. Yeah, I hear everyone's you. an al- everyone's got an alcoholic uncle because you're comfortable saying that. I don't. You don't. Nothing. You I've got I've him. got zero addiction alcoholism in my family. Really? Supposedly, my great grandfather had a thing for whiskey, but I don't yeah. even know if that's true. Yeah. But I'm all, I like I don't know. Anyway, continue. Uncle yeah. John, alcoholic. So my mom told me a story as we were kind of like figuring out what I was going to do because at the restaurant I worked at, this woman gave me her card. She was a spiritual advisor, mm. which is like you know a little bit of like another one of you. You're you're not doing great if you get a card from a spiritual advisor and they say <laughs> call me like you need to do something. Either you're really spiritually <laughs> fit or you're totally fucked. I was totally fucked. Right. So I pulled out that card and I said, Mom, I'm, this woman, I'm going to call this woman. She goes, no, no, there's no like, this is what you're doing. We're calling the hotline. You're finding out where a meeting is and you're going to a meeting tonight. I was like, tonight? How am I going to go tonight? I, I thought you would have to register, pay, get make tickets, wait, make an appointment. Book a room. And book a room. When you finally get there, there's 70,000 people and yeah. you just, you know, you, you know, who knows what happens. But there was a meeting about an hour later, right around the corner from my dealer's house. So I went to that meeting. I walked in, and I just knew, like, instantly. Like, he talks in the – Bill Wilson says something about that, uh, that, you know, that feeling of home, the electricity in the air, home at last, or something like that. Um, and that's what I felt. I was like I, – I looked around, and I could tell that these people were people that had, like, done some things. That meeting in particular, because there was a bunch of Harleys outside – there was a bunch of like tough looking people and I was like, these people have done it. Like they know what to do. And then I listened to the speaker and what happened was I was in the meeting, right? This was like as soon, like a couple of years after cell phones were invented. A lot of people didn't even have cell phones yet, but I had a cell phone for my mother cause she wanted to like, know what was happening. And she called me in the middle of the meeting, actually in the me- middle of me sharing. And I picked up the phone and talked to her. Like, imagine that happening today in a meeting. You weren't sharing. I was sharing. And your mom calls in the middle of the share. And my mom calls in the middle of the, hi, I'm George, I'm an alcoholic, I don't really know what's going on, I'm having trouble with this, this is where I've been, this is where I think I'm going. Hold on one second, picked up the phone, yeah, hey, how's it going? And I talked to her for like Like, 30 seconds. Mom, I'm sharing now. I'm sharing right now. Let me call you back. Can you imagine if that happened in a meeting today? I think it'd be a riot. No, people would love it because what (laughs) what a what a good young man you were, and what a good mother you have, George. Yeah, are you at the meeting? (laughs) Are you sharing now? Yeah, because she knew my dealer's house was right around the corner. She probably wanted to make sure, like I I didn't leave. Your mom sounds like a very sweet lady. Oh, she's. She's um What did what would you say? Did you, did you put it on speakerphone? Hello, no. this is George's <laughs> mother. Is he doing okay? No, she um she she's a tough she's a sweet, tough, perfect mix of everything I needed in a mother. She's still in Comac? Yeah, well she's they're they're selling a house down in North Carolina right now, but she's yeah, she's around, she's local. But she just, you know, because she grew up my parents got married very young. And my mom went through a whole bunch of stuff with my dad when they were younger. My dad's drinking was bad when he was younger, like, like whatever, you know, like very bad. So she went through that with him. And she goes, I went through it with your father. I survived it. I can't do it with you. I'm not going to make it. Like, I'm not going to survive. Did you so your it. dad got sober? No. He didn't get sober? No. He died? No, he's still alive. But they're not together. They are together. Yeah. You That's another you, story. You, yeah, you I, I, it's there's, there's too much nebulousness 
So your dad, that. but so but your mom made sure that you got sober, but she couldn't do it for your dad because you can't do it for anybody, really. Yeah, I think that my dad. So my, I've done a lot of like thinking and just going back and trying to figure out why things are the way they are. My mom was a super fearful person, very fearful, but she was raised by a father who instilled that fear in her. Her father was an orphan who probably had fear instilled in him by the people that ran the orphan. Then he found his mother. He went to her house. She slammed the door in his face. Mm. So he had that sense of rejection and abandonment that he passed on to my mom and her siblings, and she passed that on to us through no fault of her own and through no fault of his own. It's just the cycle of like what happens when generational trauma gets passed down. And my dad was one of eight, and... He was in a, a small home in Cambria Heights, Queens with a very tough mother, very tough Irish woman. You know, she was, there was no, there was, you just like, I think they were in like survival mode, you know, when they were growing up. I have zero judgment whatsoever. The way, yeah. the way these stories come out, it's like you're, you're such a success and you have so much, you have almost 18 years clean. Yeah. And you have your shit together. You have a beautiful family and you're telling this story. And I assume. Everything is perfect in the story, so you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. Or, or or your dad must have died. Like, but the fact of the matter is, the way we live, it's like it's so incongruous. You don't know how things are going to end. You yeah. want a picture perfect story with with an under like where you understand every facet. But nebulous is the way life is. Yeah. You know? But my dad also. So when I when I got to the rooms. I started looking around at the, the shades and the slogans and reading and listening and realizing that although my dad passed down the alcoholism gym, gin, um, gene. Gene, gene to me gin and Gene, and gene he also gave me a head start on recovery because he would say things that I hear in the rooms and I didn't understand them when I was younger. I couldn't internalize them. But, you know, like, for instance, I love this story because it just tells you, like, how people are outside of their house like sometimes sometimes people are different around different people once i found a birthday card for my dad from guys that he worked with he worked on the railroad for whatever 32 years as an engineer and the card said this was around the time when my sister and i were teenagers and my dad was just like super fucking stressed and i get to see how he is with my kids now and it's good for me to see that because I'm like, oh, that's the kind of dad he would have been for us if he wasn't so stressed out all the time about work and money and you know drinking a lot. So we read a birthday card of his, and the birthday card said, you know, Chugger, that's his nickname. <laughs> Not because of the drinking. Actually, he got it when he was a baby when he used to chug his milk, but it fit. Yeah. One, of, one of those tank, And he's an engineer on One train, of those train. tank things. Exactly. He yeah. grew into the nickname. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes me believe it might be a simulation. But- no, let's, let's, yeah, please. Yeah. You're getting me scared. So, um, the birthday card said, Chugger, we love having you around. You make everyone feel so happy. You're so funny, yada, yada. And my sister and I looked at the card and we were like, Who is this, Who is guy? this guy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But my father also, he had like a, his retirement party, his 50th birthday party, another party. And this guy would always show up. And every time he'd come to one of my dad's things, he would corner me and be like, Your dad is a great fucking man. I'm, I, I can't tell you enough how much of an impact, like a positive impact he's had on my life. And I finally asked my dad what that was about. I was like, dad, who's the guy that always says like, you're a great guy. Like I know, like I think the same, but like, who is he? Like, well, I've never heard of this. I've never seen this guy except for the, at these functions. And he said that he said a passing comment to him about the guy was belly aching or, you know, complaining about something about work. And my dad points at the newspaper. He goes, Hey, you know, that could be you. It was like a picture of a kid 
starving in Africa or something like that. And it just like changed the guy's life. So my dad still had a good perspective. He just lived, my friend Bill Kennedy, who, who died a couple of years ago, got sober young also. And I spent a lot of time with him because I just, you know, want to learn from people. And he said that his father lived a compromised life, right? His father kind of had this trajectory and then alcohol kind of like said, no, you're going to go this way. And I think that my dad, for a variety of reasons, didn't, I don't want to say this. I, he, he, he did exactly what he needed to do. He got married young. He did what he needed to do to feel like he was taking care of us. And he took care of us. And if you look at us, his children, you would think this guy did a great job. But when you're growing up in it, it's like, man, this guy's kind of a dick, but he's not. He's just a, he's just a dad. Have you ever seen Road to Perdition? With no. Tom Hanks? No. At the end of it, when his father dies, someone goes, would you say your father was a good man or a bad man? And he goes, I, I don't know. He was my dad. Right. Like, I can't tell if he was good or bad because he's so much more than that. Listen, the way you're telling this story, you can be a good man and an alcoholic. Of you course. Know, you can be a good, a good man and a good father who isn't always great. Yeah. My dad is a, is a great man and a great father, but he's a serious pain in the ass. Yeah. He's, he's put nervousness into my genetics. I'm worried all the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a difficult person, but yeah. a great man. You yeah. Know? And, you know, this isn't about your dad. It's just it's, it's interesting to me to know where anybody comes from and, yeah. and the way the ism is passed down or it isn't. You yeah. know what I mean? I think, I think uh, first of all, I can't believe how loud the crickets in my garage are. They and sound I, great. I, I feel like I'm bombing over here with these crickets. I really, Every really, joke ap- I, tell. I, I really <laughs> apologize for that. And, and, and Dopey, Na- Dopey Nation, you know, they've been with us the whole time. And uh, What's up, Dopey Nation? Fucking... Yeah. We were going to record in the house, and Linda is like, I'm going to be stomping around the house. You got to go to the garage. And I cleaned the garage out yesterday. So you're the first garage guest, which is an honor. Yeah. You know, I'm going to, a little clapping, because Tank is the first guest in the garage, and, and, and I, I feel very special that you've inaugurized, inaugurized, inaugurated sure. the inaugurated, garage. Yeah, inaugurated. Um, I recognize it when I hear it. Inaugurated the garage. That's a, it's a distinction. I don't know how great it is. One day it's going to be like Marin's garage. It's I'm glad be- it's not July. You know, it's September. It's nice and cool in here. You got the fan going. It's all right. Yeah. If this was a month and a half ago, I'd have to re- reschedule. I was like, we're yeah. gonna. I think we're gonna do it outside. And outside is so much louder. It's yeah. all birds. A lot of ambient noise. Birds, crickets, and cicadas. Um, now you get to the rooms. Does he have a reaction? No. Not so much. Not like, nothing like you, there was no, there was like a little bit of, there was been, there's been some I'm proud of yous along the way. The, everything that I need to know about my parents' relationship was shown to me at my first anniversary when my sponsor spoke for me and he was talking about Calling after work, saying I'll be right home, just then just not being able to get home. Like just, you know, can't get off the bar stool. Calling an hour later, I'll be I'll be home as soon as I can. I'm just gonna finish this up and then, you know, seven, ten, eleven, twelve, two p two AM and I was like I know that feeling, but not to the extent that he was explaining it. And I looked in the back and my mother was like hysterical crying. And it was your first year. My first year, yeah. Well, he couldn't. He couldn't face it. And my dad was just standing there. He was like, you know. But my mom that that showed me that 
there was a lot of emotion and feeling. Like it just made me feel good that I was not going to do that to her. Right. You know, it's the opposite thing. Like yeah. where you you your action was exactly the opposite. Where you were like, "Holy shit, I could be." Like that, oh yeah, and not show up for my kid or not show up for whatever for anybody, and then you triple down on yeah. the recovery, yeah. But you were still using, you said. No, so I came in to the rooms on May twentieth, two thousand two. I got sober, got clean, whatever, on October third, two thousand two. No, that is eighteen years. Isn't oh it? yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a four month, four and a half month ah. period where I was still smoking weed, going to meetings. You know, I couldn't stop. I just I, I went to treatment in Florida, right? Like I went to a million treatments, but I went yeah. to treatment in Florida for heroin addiction and they had a clubhouse in Delray and half of the clubhouse was Narcotics Anonymous and half of the clubhouse was Alcoholics Anonymous and I would go to Narcotics Anonymous and they were all like the fuck ups, you know, everybody yeah. looked like shit in yeah. Narcotics Anonymous and everybody in AA looked great. You yeah. know what I mean? Like they're wearing sweaters and like they're happy and this. Yeah. And I was convinced that everybody in AA was smoking weed. I was like, they just joined <laughs> AA so they could smoke weed. You know, I was convinced like that if you have to quit weed to, and I love smoking pot. Yeah. You know, and I was like, I have to stop smoking pot so I have to go to Narcotics Anonymous. Yeah. But that if, wasn't really the case. If I thought for even a second that smoking pot wouldn't lead me back to drinking and other drugs, I think I'd be in a lot different situation. I would probably toy with the idea of smoking pot more if I thought I could do it and it wouldn't lead me back. Because what happened was I was smoking weed going to meetings and I had this idea in my head that I was, and this is just alcoholic logic, which you'll recognize. I was like, I'm going to have to stop smoking pot eventually. I'm just going to go out one last time. And I'm going to do alcohol, drugs, cocaine, get some ecstasy, some pills, do it all, just get it out of my system by putting it into my system. Yes. Like that is just so ass backwards. Yes. And so addi- so addictive. One last time. Behavior. I'm going to get it out of my system. Get it out of my system. By putting it into my system. All of it. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> as much as I can. So I was at a meeting and the, the chairperson was scrambling trying to look for a speaker. And I said, what happened? I asked somebody, like, why is, you know, where'd the speaker go? And somebody goes, well, the, the guy who was supposed to speak, his sponsee died yesterday or two days ago. He's at the funeral. The guy had like seven months and he went out one last time. And I was like, holy shit, this really does happen. People really do die. And I just figured that... Um, that was going to be me. Like it was just, I don't, tr- I don't believe that if you yell at somebody, you're walking towards a drink. I don't believe that if you look at porn, you're walking towards a drink or if you overeat or if you overspend, it's not good to do those things in excess. But if I were to pick up smoking pot, I would be sprinting towards a drink, Right, sprinting. So I'm not saying just to like, cause I get a little bit like, Indignant about people conflating sobriety and perfection. I just don't think it's possible, and I don't think it's helpful for people to say, I wasn't, you know, that's not sober behavior. If you're not drinking or doing drugs, everything you do by definition is sober behavior. Yeah, but you know what they're saying. What what they're saying is if you're putting, like, I eat like ice cream to feel better. Like, yes. I, straight up. Yeah. I eat ice cream and, or cookies to, to feel better. Yeah. And like I put it into me to feel different and to feel better. Yeah. Or or, or any of those things that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Or, or and, and like to you, I bet you sometimes you do, you go to the gym to, to put that into you to feel better. Yeah. So we're not talking about like good, bad or otherwise. I think when they talk about it as not sober behavior and I have much less time than you, so with all due respect, but here, it, let's hear it. It's like 
it's, it's putting something into you to feel better that isn't God. You know, that isn't like, yeah, free, I mean, and that's, and that's that really austere fucking hardcore, yeah. it's this or that. But nobody does that. Right, because we are not saints. Exactly. And as long as you're trying to get better, like I just, I, I feel like there's so much judgment around not being a perfect upstanding member of AA all the time that I think it just, I think it does more harm than good. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think it also gives people allowances to enjoy aspects of their life without feeling guilty. And yes, I, and which I, you, as you should. Absolutely. I have a long list. I have different, I guess, mental toolboxes that I will go into. And at the bottom of the, of the list, in hell, is the toolbox that has alcohol and drugs in it. Above that, I have porn, sex. Above that, I have food. Above that, I have spending money. Like, it's just, you know, above that, obviously, you want to go to God with all your problems, but we're wired to... And does God really want to hear about it? All of the problems? All the time? I know. Come on. He's got stuff to do. Yes. I think that because, you know, I think that as an ideal, it's beautiful to think that because I have this infinite hole in me, only something infinite can fix it. Which is true, but in the meantime, I'm going to watch 40-Year-Old Virgin 40 times in a row and the to co- feel Have better. you ever had a chocolate chip cookie from Boston Market? Holy no, but I love food, and I know I have my own version of that. Dude. I had a crawler this weekend that would fucking, it would take you out. A crawler? It would take you out. It almost took me out. Where did you get this crawler? I went fishing in Montauk. Okay. And there's a place called the Montauk Bake Shop. Okay. And this donut, which I even hesitate to call it a donut because it's like an insult was the most delicious thing I've ever tasted in my entire life. The texture, the flavor, it was the perfect size. It wasn't too small, but it wasn't so big where I was like, I can't, you know, I can't do this. I had two. I had one jelly, one cream. Both crawlers. Both crawlers. But I also, I've gotten, I, I had not even a nodding acquaintance with moderation. I've gotten better with that also. So I feel like if I have a donut... I'll be fine. It's not like the end of the world. I could never have one hit of something. No, me neither. When I was a kid, I wanted to write a, uh, a Weird Al sort of takeoff <laughs> on colors uh-huh. as crawlers. Yeah. Crawlers. Crawlers. Yeah, I like crawlers. that. Yeah, it would have been great, but uh, it never happened. And whenever I hear the word crawlers, I start uh-huh. hearing the song Colors. Yeah. Man. It's fucked up. Not too late. It's too, <laughs> it's too late. Um, <laughs> And I'm the same way. Like last night, we're driving home from the beach, and we went to Smith's Point. And we're and this is a very Long Island centric episode, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And we're, we're driving home from Smith's Point, and like I I I used to live in in Manhattan in Chelsea, and there was a Boston Market down the street. And when I was doing well, I would go to Boston Market. Mm-hmm. It was like my signature dish to show me that I was doing well. I'd also yeah. always buy heroin right outside of Boston Market, Double or down. sometimes inside Boston Market, and I. I still have such fond memories of copping dope at Boston Market. It's crazy. Yeah. So I leave the. Should they be glad to hear that? It should be their commercial. I want to advertise for Boston Market (laughs) because I do feel like their cookies are like the greatest cookies in the world. So Boston Market, yes, you shouldn't cop heroin at Boston Market. Yeah. But the cookies are fire. Yesterday, I take my family of of my wife and my two daughters. And I'm like, we're going to go to Boston Market. We call up the in-laws. I said, I'm buying Boston Market for everybody. We get the meal for six. And they sell cookies one at a time uh-huh. or in four packs. Yeah. I said, fuck it. Give me two four packs. Easily, yeah. I said, give me two four, because my mother-in-law steals my cookies. That's what she does. Yeah. When my 
wife was pregnant, she came over and she stole cookies while we were in the hospital. Most mother-in-laws is bringing food that she takes shit out of here. So why I, doesn't she get her own cookies? That's what I've been saying for years. Why don't you get your own cookies? She's a burglar. She's like the hamburglar of cookies. Cookies, yeah. But she fucking... So last night, right, so we're setting up the meal. I take all the cookies, and I know her. What she does is she doesn't eat a cookie for dessert, but she says, Dave, you think I could take a cookie to go and enjoy with my paper in the afternoon tomorrow? She Every time. Yeah. So I take two cookies out of the mix, and I put them in the toaster oven to hide them. So nobody knows that I have my cookies saved up. And I have to put the baby to bed. And I come downstairs, and she's like, Dave, I saved you a cookie. And there's like a half a cookie on a plate. But she doesn't realize that I have my cookies saved. And Uh she has her shit to go. And she's about to leave. And and my wife says, what's that in the toaster Uh, oven? And her mother goes, and she's like, Dave, you, you... Hiding the cookies And I'm like Yeah I'm fucking Hiding the cookies Anyway she took Two cookies to go Because that's what she does And she took an extra Piece of chicken Wow I know It's amazing I think it's the Norwegian in her Norwegians I think Hoard Now Dopey Nation People from Norway Are They're Norwegians A selfish hoarding bunch Or am I wrong about this Vikings They hoard everything Yes They hoard nations My dad We would go to like uh, Family dinners over there and there would just there would be just enough food, and she's like he's and Jewish people have way too much food. You know, yeah. you're always saving food, and there's people aren't don't know Jewish people as being very generous. It's not part of our mystique. <laughs> but if you go to a Jewish guy's house for dinner, usually there's way too much food. Yeah. And I said, he said, what's up with the food? He goes, what's up with these goys? They don't have any food, which I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's just whatever. Yeah. My dad putting down my in laws. Yeah. Which I love. Um, I like. Crisis and family stuff like that. I yeah, think, it's I, the best. Do you get along Keeps with your in laws? Yeah. Now, my wife's dad died before we met, but her mom is great. And does she get along with your mom? Yes. You had to think about it. Though. Well, you threw me off with mom. I thought my parents. She gets. They get along with my. She gets along with my parents. Very good. Yeah. There's no hard feelings. Now, as much as I want to just talk about cookies, and I, I don't know why I needed to take you down that, that Boston road. Market. I'm going to stop on the way home. Probably. Dude, I have the two cookies. And really? I, I will give you one. No, I'm going to pass. You're not going to put that in you. I had two crullers two days ago. Okay. It's out there, though. I'm, I, I'm mentally not, satisfied for a while. I'm not one to share these cookies, and I really that, believe keep in them. them. So I want to give know. you that gift of taking the pressure off. I appreciate that. Now, I'd be a fool to have you out in Sayville and take this time without talking about your career. And um, if you guys don't even know who Tank Sinatra is, he's like the premier meme maker. Yeah. How did that even happen? Addiction. How so? No, seriously, (laughs) how did it happen? Um, So have you ever seen the movie I Heart Huckabees? Yes. Do you love it? No. Oh, it's my favorite movie. I know. I heard you talking about it this morning. I like it though. I like I like that movie. It's a very like crazy just, esoteric movie. It caught me. I had a very hard time with the higher power thing. Uh huh. Growing up, I grew up Catholic. I got kicked out of Catholic school because my parents were a few months late with the tuition. I just felt like the whole thing was a sham and, a, and nonsense. And all I knew about Jesus was that he got beat up and killed. And the Jews killed him. Did Catholic? They you, did they teach you that? The Jews killed him. Yeah. Pontius Pilate did something. They stabbed him in the rib and they let him, you know, they left him to die. And like they didn't, in Catholic school, they didn't, maybe I missed it. I don't know. Maybe I was distracted, but they barely talked about what he stood for at all. 
all they talked about was the fact that the Jews killed him. So that's all I knew. That's tr- it's true, right? That's all they said. Yes, that's all they say. I went. I went to my friend's confirmation. It's not helpful at all, dude. I went to his confirmation. Yeah. Uh, class, and and he's like. Dave, come with me to the confirmation class. I'm 12 years old, and the nun is like, and the Jews kill, and he's pointing at me. And I'm like, this is ter- it's a terrible feeling. It's, it's true. You actually went to Catholic school. It's true. That's basically all you heard. That's all I heard. And I guess maybe because that's so, it's such a violent imagery that that's what sticks with you, but that's what I got out of it is that the Jews killed Christ, <laughs> and everyone should feel bad And hate the about Jews. It. Exactly. Yes. So I abandoned that. But I always had an appreciation for the awe-inspiring aspects of life, connection to something above or, or outside, um, gratitude, just appreciation for like stuff that you can't explain, stuff that man could have never built, right? So I, I liked science because science was man's attempt to explain what we can see and what we can observe, and I appreciated faith because it was man's attempt to appre- uh, uh, explain what we can't see and what we can't observe, Objectively, I have my own experiences with God or higher power, whatever you want to call it, but I can't explain those to you. And if you try to explain yours to me, I think you're crazy and I'm the only one with real experiences. I'm with how you. it goes. So, wait, why did I start talking I heard about Huckabee's. that? I heard Huckabee's. So I watched What the Bleep Do We Know and I heard Huckabee's back to back for the first year of my sobriety. Over and over. Over and over again, every night. Just like repetition. And I believe in repetition because, like I said, I believe in the cumulative effect. I don't like watching or even reading books once because I, you miss so much, so why not go back? You stay in the book. I, I there's you like, stay in those movies. I stay in the movie until I, feel like it's, until I feel like I've exhausted it, and I do the same thing with books. I've been reading the same 25 books for the last What book have you years. read more than every other book? Uh, the big book. Is that true? Oh, yeah. Because I just never stop reading it. I'll just read. And, you know, when this whole pandemic struck, I just, I assume the way I do things will be good for anybody. And that's not the case. Because I've got it all figured out, obviously. But I think one thing that I do that is helpful is uh, we were, I was at a, a makeshift meeting at a guy's house, and one of the guys was talking about having a hard time because he like there's no meetings and he doesn't he can't figure out the Zoom. Um, you know, he'll pick up a book to read, he'll pick up the big book to read it. He can't read more than ten pages without getting distracted. And I was like, oh, hold on, like two pages is fine. Two pages is all I read at a time. Two three pages max. I will I read until I get something out of it, and then I close it. So that's a given that I've read more than anything. But the book that I read or I've read the most and gotten the most out of is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Okay. Have you read that? No, but I'm really it's, poor and a failure. It's and I think I should read this book. It's the best. Think and Grow Rich. It's like The Secret, but no bullshit. Okay. So it kind of like, you know, Napoleon Hill was a guy that followed around the titans of industry for 20 years, 25 years maybe, and interviewed them and just drilled them with questions and watched their habits and their patterns and kind of distilled it all into this book. And we're talking about like Andrew Carnegie, um, J.P. Morgan, like John Pierpoint Morgan, like the real guy, Henry Ford, um, Thomas Edison, just massively successful people. And what he boiled everything down to was definiteness of purpose and transmuting sexual energy into outward energy. So all this stuff comes together. And in I Heart Huckabee's, he talks about uh, Dustin Hoffman is saying to Jason Schwartzman, he's like, your mind is always obsessed with something. You might as well make it something good. 
And then you couple that up with the Jay-Z line where he says, there's nothing wrong with my aim. I just had to change the target. Like I just started figuring out that I have all this energy and if I can focus it in one direction, I might be able to do something with it. Yes. But I'm I have loving to, this. Keep going. But I have to stick with it. So I've, I had multiple blogs over the years. I had a blog in 2003, then I had another one in 2005, then 2009, then I had a website in 2011 that won a Webby Award. That was like my first taste of success. What was the website that won the Webby Award? It was called ifoundmoneytoday.com. So I would leave $5 bills around Manhattan when I worked in the city and just take a picture of it, write a little story about where it was, who was around, what I thought was going to happen with it. And that was it. And I just submitted it to the Webby Awards. I won. And that was like, you know, that was my first taste of like, oh, maybe I have something here, you know, because it wasn't about me. It was about the experience that these people were yes. going to have finding the money because finding money is great. Yes. It's the best. Yeah. No, the whole thing is the best because yeah. your vision was there are all these people out there yep. and I can interact with them all in this sort of macro way through the internet. But one of them is going to find the $5 bill. Yep. And I'm touching them directly. Yeah. And you have both things happening at the same time. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. So then the memes started. I started making memes on Reddit just for fun. Who started memes in the first place? There's no like there's no single point of origin. What they've they've the first thing that really went viral on the internet via email was the dancing baby, the Allie McBeal baby. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was like the first thing. And then it was videos and cats and different... I guess the first thing to go viral was probably a chain letter, but that's more like a, an actual virus, not like something good. Right. Just like annoying, like some, someone giving you homework. Yes. Forward this to 10 people or I you're going to die. Yeah. So stupid. Why do people do it? Why do they do that? People, why do my friends who supposedly are smart do that? So it's the same reason people share fake news on Facebook. One, it scared them. Two, they think they're doing people a favor. Right. They really think that they're doing their friends and family a favor. They believe it. Yes, by sharing this bullshit. Right. Not knowing that it's creating more chaos and fear than anything. They really feel, I think they feel like they're doing, they're, they're helping in some way. And it's, and it's a way for them to get attention. And it's a way for them to interact with people. Interact. If they have nothing else to say. Exactly. It's a, way, it's a weird, like, almost renting an expression. Like, you're going to give me a way to express myself through your fear and exactly. whatever. Yeah. All right, so continue. So then I started making memes on Reddit on a website called Quick Meme, and I posted one to Reddit that blew up and made the front page of Reddit, and I was like, oh, shit, this feels good. I like this. Attention. Feels nice. But I wasn't serious about it. I just kind of, like, did it for no reason other than I've always had some kind of creative um, side hustle, or not even a hustle, side Avenue, Like I always, I had my job and then I had to do something else to like express myself creatively. 99% of the time was through humor. So when I started the Instagram page, I reached out to the fat Jewish who was very big at that time. He had like five or six million followers, which back then was like as big as they got in the meme world. And I told him that I would like to start sending him stuff. Like, I'm on Reddit all the time anyway. I'll just find stuff that I think is good and email it to you or set up a, a cloud a sharing, photo share album on, on uh, the phone. You liked him the most. I didn't know enough about anybody to like anybody the most. It was like him and Fuck Jerry. That was it. That was all that existed. Girl with no job, daddy issues, but they were like few and far between. I actually, when I started making memes, I felt like I was late to the game. And I was like, why bother at this point? But 
he started tagging me in his captions because I was sending him so much stuff, and he built my page up to like 300,000 before I even thought about what was happening. And then it stopped, and then I had another turning point. I was like, all right, I can either stop because he stopped or see if I can take this thing further without his help. And that was, I think, kind of like... So definiteness of purpose... In The Alchemist, it says when you know a person decides they want something, all the universe conspires to help them achieve it. My friend Adam, Adam the Creator, um, he's a big believer in moving first, creating momentum. And one story that I think of all the time was in the office, they had like a bunch of old furniture. The business was stagnant. Nothing was happening. It was just like a bad time for the business and in general over there. And he bought all new furniture. And his partner at the time was like, what are you doing buying furniture? And then two days later, um, CNBC calls. They wanted us to be on A-Rod's new show, Back in the Game. So one day during somewhat of an argument, Adam goes, I don't know, dude. All I know is that I buy new furniture. Two days later, CNBC calls me. They want me to be on the show. If, if we didn't have I, – I probably I don't know if I would have been able to do it if the office looked the way it looked. But it's not about the way the office looks. It's more about like you taking the first step in the direction that you want to go and then kind of – you know, life or God or whatever you want to call it, getting behind you and saying, all right, I see what you're doing here. I want to support you in I, your direction. And I read The Alchemist, so I, yeah. I, I, I get that. And I just I, reread it. You know, like, and I'm, listen, Dopey has a very, very, very small but fervent fan base. Like, we're not even a small fish. We're like a large insect. You know, <laughs> we are. Spider cricket? No, more like a praying mantis. Yeah. Like, and... uh but yeah, there are a lot of spider crickets in here. <laughs> they're, like, they're like ready to come out. Um, but and I, I've done very little in that kind of work, like to prepare for the next level. Yeah. How intrinsic was it for you as you grew to prepare for the next level? Was that part of your process? No, I think that. So I've always wanted more than I had. Right, I think that's just in human nature. And the addict, it's, it's exactly. Yes. So I hate to use another rap line, but Drake said, "What did Drake say exactly?" He said something about his cell phone or something. No, he said, "So get it while you hear, because all that hype don't feel the same next year." Right. So what that meant to me was like, whatever small victories I'm experiencing right now, appreciate them because next year. If I, if I get a similar victory to the one I have now, it's not going to feel the same. I have to go bigger and bigger. But on the converse, if, I, if Ellen called me three years ago and said, come on my show, you would have read about me in the news. It would have been like, this is the worst guest in the history of <laughs> Ellen ever. Like the, the guy froze up on stage. He couldn't speak. His throat started quivering and he started crying. He threw up. Like that's what you would have but heard. But that would have been a major, a major appearance. Huge. Yes. It would, probably would have been beneficial. But I think that every step that you take in life prepares you for the next step. Okay. And if you squander that experience and that pain, you don't build up whatever muscle you need to get ready for the next level. Like I'm a big believer in just building upon building upon building. And like I think of my recovery as just like, you know, there's a ton of construction in the city. One day I was looking at this building that was like abandoned. And I guess like they ran out of money or whatever happened. There, was, there wasn't even a fence around it. It was just like done. They were just done building it. And I was like, that, that could have been me. If I like decided to stop building myself in recovery, I could be an abandoned building. Or even worse, I could have knocked it down at the foundation and had to start all over again, which would be terrible. Now my life, 
objectively speaking, I almost don't like talking about how good my life is because I feel like I'm being braggy, braggado- like braggadocious. I don't want to brag, but I want people to understand that my life is so much better than I could have ever possibly planned for at that time. Like when they say beyond your wildest dreams, my wildest dreams when I came into the rooms were literally being in one of those old school limousines with a, a hot tub in the back, driving through New York City with two girls in bikinis doing cocaine. Right. That to me was like peak living. <laughs> yes, I'm with you. It's, it's so funny though when you boil down the life beyond your wildest dreams and you're like, that's my wildest dream, fucker. That's all I got. Yeah, exactly. And now you have this beautiful life with you know, two kids. and Yeah, whatever. man. I mean, my wife is, and, uh, and as a, a recovering, I guess, codependent person, you could also say, or fear of abandonment, the fact that I have her in my life is another thing. Like every aspect of my life is beyond whatever my wildest dreams were in respect to that aspect. I was like convinced I'm just going to, I was so fearful of losing the, whatever girl I was dating, I would ruin it. Like I would just ruin, I figured, I guess subconsciously like I'm going to ruin it. I'm not going to let you leave me. I'm going to make you leave me. I guess, I don't know. I was terrible in relationships. No, I, under, I totally understand. My financial situation was horrific, terrible. How do you get to the place where, how do memes make money? So when you have a big platform, companies will want to tell whatever, whatever company, whether it's a service or a show or a product or whatever, they'll want other people to know about it. So one of the channels that they use is Instagram pages. It's kind of like owning a TV station with none of the overhead. Right, it is. I mean, that's that's. I mean, basically, you are on one of the forebears of this Wild West situation where anybody yeah. can figure something out yeah. and carve out their own destiny. Yeah. It's weird, though, because it's like, I'm a huge music fan and, and old school yeah. music fan, and, like, the dream of being a rock star is gone. Yeah. Because the music industry died when Napster was created or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and now these people, people like you, these people, carve out your own destiny with your own ideas. It's, yeah. it's pretty miraculous. And the dream is, how do I be a... It's a creator. Is that... Is, I, mean, is, yeah. is, I mean, people say influencer. I don't like that word. Influencer is a very specific brand of Instagram page where it's like, it's usually some kind of travel or fashion bullshit. And I don't, you know, I don't... But you create. I like to create, and I also like to curate. Like, Tanks Good News is all curated. Influencers in the Wild is all curated. I don't create They're any They're both. Very, influencers, influencers in the Wild is super funny. Your, your page is super funny, and Tanks, Tanks Good News is just nice. It's, yeah. I mean, did Tanks Good News, was it born from that terrible feeling when you scroll? I mean, dude, it, it's... So it was born specifically out of Hurricane Harvey... But it was born generally out of me just being like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Fox, CNN, MSNBC, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, what are you guys doing? You have this fucking massive platform where you can communicate directly with people and all you want to tell them about is what went wrong? That to me, like I had a friend like that. I had. I use, I mean, I cannot emphasize strong enough the word past. I cannot I will not allow myself to be around people like that. I'm not saying that I won't listen to a friend talk to me about a problem that's going on, but if every time we talk you're complaining about everything that's wrong in your life, I'm going to eventually tap out because I don't... 
I want to hear, again, like this is all born out of recovery. I want to hear what you're doing about the situation. And if you can't change the situation, I want to hear about how you're changing your perspective regarding the situation. I don't want to hear about the situation more than like twice or three times. So let me ask you this. Like, obviously, your whole career is embedded in the scroll. It's embedded in the social media. Yeah. And... Luckily, you, you're a great success at it. Like, I suck at the social media. And not only does it give me a headache, I rarely get the... I don't get the 100,000 likes. Yeah. If I get 200 likes, i like, okay, somebody's paying attention. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's like, and it's like that. If yeah. I post something and I look in the first 10 minutes and I don't have X amount of likes, I take it down. Because yeah. I can't live with it. I, know. I can't live with that trajectory. Sucks. So, how... Badly have you been affected? Like how how much are you affected by just the malaise or the fatigue of the scroll of all of it? Um, I have to be very conscious of it. It's a good question. Um, I you know at this point I'm looking to parlay my platforms into ventures that are off the platform, so that I don't have to depend so much on the platforms. For a few reasons. One, I don't know what Instagram is going to do in the coming years. I don't want to have all my eggs tied up in that one basket, and then all of a sudden Mark Zuckerberg decides to shut it down one day, and I'm like, what Uh am I going to do now? I mean, mean, a lot of people would be in big trouble if that happened, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. It's not likely, but I don't want to like depend on that. And two, I don't want to have to be on the internet so much. I'm currently on like a politics fast, where if I see anything to do with Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Black Lives Matter or gay rights or anything. I just, I don't, I believe that, obviously I believe in gay rights and Black Lives Matter. I just can't deal with the vitriol that comes as a result of it. So if people are talking about that, there's a 99% chance they're arguing about it. Well, it's a depressing moment. Nobody's gassing each other up. Hey, great job. And there is not a figure that's saying we're all people. No. We're all together on this world. We're all together in this country. We're all struggling in this time. You can't say that right now. It's not allowed. You'll be looked at like you're crazy. Or like you're an idiot. Because what's happening is that there's this weird kind of, and I haven't said this in a, I don't even know if I've ever said it publicly, and I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to, because Dopey Nation. Dopey exclusive. So I feel like there's this weird game of like poker going on where people holding the most cards of the thing that they can complain about are winning on the internet so like as a white straight male nobody wants to hear anything i have to say and it's fine because white straight males have been talking for long enough and i'm sure everyone's tired of hearing them but i don't want to be felt like i don't exist or don't matter and that's part of like what i mean you can't say that because black people understandably will say, yo, we've been feeling that way for fucking hundreds of years. Fuck off. And, uh, and I'm not saying that they don't have a right to feel that way. I'm just saying like from the person who's in it right now, it doesn't feel great to feel like, you know, not that you don't matter, but more like you're not allowed to say anything about anything without being criticized. Well, I don't think anybody can say anything about anything without hearing so much bullshit. You know, it's like it is impossible for... But you can't, you can't even exist like in that way. Like since Trump, I'll, g- I'll give you a weird example. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily help or not help. But since Trump became president, do you know who Rob Reiner is? Yeah. 
you know, and I'm such a Rob Reiner fan. He's a brilliant film director, brilliant actor, brilliant writer, just a man who I really admired. But yeah. once Trump became president, everything about Rob Reiner shut down. Yeah. And all that was left of Rob Reiner was what a fucking idiot Trump is. Yeah. That's it. Which is why people, their heart breaks when people become drug addicts. It's the same thing because when, Obsession and compulsion When you become a heroin addict You are no longer the guy who loves this band Or That's likes really this movie You're just a walking representation of what heroin does To a human body You know But So are you saying America is strung out on these things? We're fucking way strung out That's very deep And the, the point is Because I want to qualify what I said before Because I'm even scared to say that I don't blame I, you I'd be very, I feel, If I was you I'd be terrified right now Like on Tank's Good News specifically I posted when when the Black Lives Matter protests were at a fever pitch, right? Mm-hmm. I, as someone who feels like it's my job to bring hope to bleak situations, posted a video, or multiple videos and pictures of protesters and police officers working together, right? Even for a moment, even if an hour later they were fucking tear gassing them, I was like, here's a moment that we need to hang on to. This is what humans really want to be. When they're not worried about what their cohorts are thinking about them, when the cops are not worried about, you know, I hope my, my coworkers don't see me working with these protesters or the protesters are saying, I hope these protesters don't see me working with the police. That's what we want to be. We want to be collaborative. But I posted that stuff. And because I refuse to take a stand left or right, like, like staunch left or staunch right, and I'm not saying left of center or right of center. I'm saying like because I'm not an extremist on the left and because I'm not an extremist on the right, I figured if I were just left of center, which is where I stand politically, then I run the risk of pissing off 50% of the people in the world. But because I won't take a stand extreme either way, I run the risk of pissing, p- pissing off 80% of the people. Because you're going to get the percentages on either side. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like I just got so fed up. And then I was like, you know what? I am a good person and I try hard. And because I feel this way, it doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that it's accurate or that I'm, like, I'm saying that this is the truth. I'm just saying what it feels like. But it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, I feel like people... The reason that gay people and trans people and black people have such a hard time in this country is because the majority of people don't want to think before they speak or think at all because it's too hard. So when like you got a trans person saying, hey, I know I look like a, a, a male, but I actually identify as female, the average, not the average, maybe like the average person on the right is like, oh, fuck, my brain hurts. Like, I can't do it. I fucking call you a he, bro. Just get over it. Like, No. That's not the way, like people, asking people to be considerate is almost out of the question at this point, which is why people who have been oppressed and marginalized for their entire lives are like, enough. We've had enough. So now you have people who haven't been oppressed and marginalized kind of like, all right, this sucks. Like, I get it. I'm with you. I was already with you, but now I'm like really with you. Totally, especially if you get back to the program, you know what I mean? Where, yeah. Where the only thing that really counts is love and tolerance is our code. Period. You know, that's it. And um, But you have to have love and tolerance for everybody, even the ignorant people. Exactly. Which you also can't really do. I, I go to this meeting like a, a pretty conservative, mostly probably just right of center. Yeah. And I'm probably stand close to where you stand politically. Yeah. And there was a dude in there. 
and he was bent out of shape. You know yeah. what I mean? And he was like, I haven't been to a real meeting in X amount of time. And I used to go to the, he used to go to the pit, oh, and, oh boy. And, you know, which is a tough meeting. And he's like, and, and I stopped going there and now this chaos. And he kind of, he didn't want to use the word sham that is COVID like yeah, kind yeah. of thing, but he was getting himself worked up. And he said, I got away from the program and I got away from God and I got away from love. And now I'm here and I realized how sick it is for an addict and an alcoholic to get away from those good things. Yeah. Like to get caught up in yeah. that fucking crazy out there has nothing to do with the thing that led us to this beautiful place. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, I, and I get your point. It's like, especially when it's somebody like you who rides high on what's happening in the world. And the world is fucking divisive and crazy. And it's like, you have to sit it out or else it's not going to be good for you. You know what? I think that people assume that wherever you are in life currently, when they discover you, is where you've always been. Right. So, so, you, yeah, so you've always had like two million followers. I'm just frozen and, in time yeah, to yeah, them. Right. They don't know that I almost died or that I wanted to die or that I've battled with suicidal thoughts and depressive thoughts my entire life, that I've battled with homicidal thoughts in my early recovery. They, they don't know any of that. All they know is that I'm posting a video of something that makes them upset and they want to tell me. And I got 2 million people on Tanks Good News telling me every single thought they're having, which is just too much for any one individual to bear. How does it feel to be the center of that maelstrom? If I let myself get caught up in it, I think I would lose my mind. I really do. So what do you do to to keep perspective? Um, I try and weight the negative comments less than the positive comments. Like just if I see... Because at the end of the, like, if I was really to break it down, if there's a thousand comments, 15 of them are negative. But because of the way we're wired as human beings, I see those 15 and I'm like, well, that's everything. That's how everybody feels. That's not the case at all. So I try and keep everything right size, but I also mostly don't read the comments. That's smart. How successful are you at keeping things right size? Because I know for me, like, if I get. A hundred reviews, yeah, and one is bad, yeah. It, I know that it's reflecting the the self hatred inside of me to the max, yeah. Like the that's mi- all it is. But it's like to the like I'm like crazy, like, and I read a bad thing and I'm I'm hurt, like I'm fucking, I, I'm like not great at home, I'm not yeah. great with my family because some weirdo out there has talked shit about me, you know. <laughs> so like you have a platform, you know. A hundred times, two hundred times bigger than my platform. Like, how do you deal with it? Usually the worse the comment is, the less seriously I take it. It's better. When it's worse, it's better. If someone's like, this is not funny, I'm devastated. If someone's like, I hope you get cancer and die, I'm like, ha Right, you can live with that. However, you're talking about family. A couple of weeks ago, somebody wrote a comment. So every once in a while, I'll get somebody who's just like, really hates me for some reason, Right. Because they hate themselves, obviously. I'm reflecting something in them. Like you just said, it reflects back to you. And this guy sent me a screenshot of a comment that said, Tank is a bald, fat, faggot fucking cuck who needs to be murdered or something like needs to be publicly um, executed so that everyone knows what happens when you get famous off of memes. It was lunacy. It was legitimately like, holy shit, dude, are you okay? And he sent me a screenshot of it and said, I can't believe you fucking deleted my comment. 
And I was like, I wrote back, I'm like, I didn't see it, but I can't believe you thought Instagram would let you post something like that. <laughs> like, what are you, fucking crazy? And then he writes back to me, I've had enough, your family's going to pay. Oh, right? God. And I was like, I fucking, I, I mean, I really lost it. I was like, try, I went to this guy's Instagram, I fucking... Got his information. I looked him up on LinkedIn. I had him. I, I had. I sent the screenshot of the the message to my contact at Instagram. I was like, if something happens, this is what happened. Like I was literally ready to find this guy, just because. Like, how dare you say something like that? But I forgot my own rule, which is keep things right size. But then he's like, you know, he said my family's going to pay. I was like, what does that mean? Well, that's the f- worst thing you could ever hear from some stranger on the internet. It's scary. It's very scary. You have children. You I know. have children. My family's not going to pay. Or if they do, like, you're going to, you know. What the fuck happened? Like, so what happens there? Like, and, and how do you, because I, I love the expression right size, too. Yeah. Because, like, you see the earth from afar, and then something like that happens, and you zoom in, and yeah. you're like, I want to find this motherfucker and kill him. Yeah. Or, or at least put the fear of God into them. Yeah. So, like, how do you zoom back out? Like, what's the process? So that's a, a great way to put it. I think I spend most of my time zoomed out. So in order for me to zoom in, I really have to get triggered somehow. Bananas. But I think of terms like in I Heart Huckabees, he talks about taking the long view. And I love thinking about terms in, like, uh, in terms of like spatially to your family, we're just two dudes in a garage. To someone down the road, we're just two people on a lot. To people in Esconza, we're people in Saville. The further out you go, the, like, the, the less important you become until all of a sudden, to somebody in France, we're just Americans. We're not separate in their mind. You go all the way out into space, we're just people on Earth. And that's just spatially. Time-wise, you go to you know, the year 20, 2150, we're just people who were alive now. So really, how important is something? Not very important at all. Where was that all. dude? Where was he? I don't remember. Really? I don't remember. When did that happen? A couple of weeks ago. That's the other thing. I... Um, when when I I would be I'd remember his street I'd remember his town no. I remember what time it was like I'm like sick with that shit I used to be but then I figured I've had enough like recovery and I don't mean sobriety I mean like recovery from traumatic experiences like this even though this wasn't traumatic traumatic I would there's no other way to describe it it wasn't a pleasurable experience so I've gotten over enough stuff to know that no matter what at some point in the future I'm going to be okay with it. So typically I just go to the future and grab that relief and then come back like I'm a time traveler. Where did you get that idea? Like I heard you say that before when when you go to the when you go into the house yeah. you know we're in the garage or you go down the street and they're on this street. Yeah. Where did that where did where did you get that from? I don't know. I love that. Yeah. That's great. But in the same oh, way I'm sorry. I um I, I there's like I guess I forgot when it was. You know, have you ever seen somebody like or met somebody some, from far away. Like, you, let's say you go to California, and somebody goes, oh, you're from New York? Do you know John? Yeah. You're like, no, I don't know John. Sure. What are you talking about? So I guess that's where it came from. Just like this idea that the further away you get, the more cohesive the thing seems, even though right now you and I are obviously two definitely very separate people. Right. No, and, and I, it's interesting because it's hard for me to remember that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I struggle with that. Like people I work with, or you know, sometimes in the family, you know, sometimes at a meeting, sometimes with friends. Like I forget how together we actually are, and I think it's yeah. like, and I feel totally alone. 
You know what I mean? And I think it's like, it's a great tool. Like, that's a great tool in your nine levels of tune toolboxes. Yeah. That's a fucking all-purpose fucking tool. Yeah. It's great. And it also, in the, the Daily Reflections, he talks about the, the seeing things from a, a God height or right. God point of view. Like, there's no way for you to know everything that's happening in somebody's life. So... I remember I used to, I wasn't, I, thank God I've never been like a road ragey type of person, but I, I did drive a lot, so there would be times on the road where I'd get pissed off at somebody, but then there would be times where I would do something stupid, and I would only do it like, I would, I would make a dumb move like once a year, right? But when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you act, or I act, I used to act, like that person has done that every day of my life since I've been born. This guy. Every single day, this guy with yeah. the Buick cuts me off. I've never seen this guy before. I don't know what's going on in his life. I don't know if he's ever done that before in his entire life. So I'm not going to act like he did. That came from a, a girlfriend of mine who I was dating, who I was given a very hard time about something. I don't remember what it was. But she goes, you act like I do this all the time. It happened once. And I was like, holy shit, you're right. I do act like you do. I'm, I'm making it seem like this is all you do. And it's not all you do. I don't use words like always or every time. I don't use that. I don't use those words. I get caught words. up in that stuff all the time. You always yeah. do this. Yeah, like, yeah, really? Yeah. Always? I'm, I'm, like, I'm, like, terrible with that kind of stuff. There's so much time that I don't do this. Dude, do you want to read a dopey email? Sure. Read it. Me, I read it? Do you, want, do you mind or do you want me to read it? No. Right. Oh, Jen. <laughs> nice. Do I read who it's from? No. Okay. Not. Um, in February 2019, I was drinking a fifth plus a gin a day. Some weeks I would stay in bed all week and get delivery, do my job laying down on the bed with my computer. My rental home was falling apart and messy, and I was so embarrassed to call the landlord. Relatable. Uh, eventually, the stove, sink, dishes, and clothes washers were not working. I had lost freelance work. I needed internet paycheck loans. I gained nearly 100 pounds. I, by accident, heard this American Life episode. I was thunderstruck by the loss of Chris and started binging past shows. I listened to almost all of them. To be honest, the first episodes, I thought Dave sounded barely sober, and Chris was the one infusing more recovery. But over time, I could hear Dave change and grow while still being funny and not preachy. I was able to stop drinking for a week at a time, but kept relapsing in the summer of 2019. I became more stable over time with the weeks off drinking. I found a better place to live for me and my kids. They are with me 50% of the time. I got more freelance work. I replaced my 20-year-old truck with 200,000 miles. I could, cut, I could string a couple of weeks sober together. When the pandemic struck, I was worried about my health as well, leaving the house. So I stopped drinking 100%, and I haven't had any booze since March 13th, 2020. Since then, I have lost 40 pounds, walk or bike daily, enjoy gardening, money situation transformed, etc. In April, I met somebody, and we hit it off immediately as all deadheads, gardeners, and sexually. Nice. From nice. <laughs> From April to August, we hung out two to three times daily, texted all the time. It was a little bit of a relationship binge, and she is a pothead, so I partook until August. I stopped smoking and started seeing things more clearly. I tried to initiate a conversation about things or us, but it ruined the vibe for her, and she ended the relationship. I am still reeling from it, but hit a bottom in the last week where I was thinking about drinking again or dumping off a bridge. I had relied on this person for most of my emotional support and am still grappling about accepting the relationship was unhealthy, my mistakes and our incompatibilities. I have decided to make these to make changes, including one, a hundred percent sobriety of all substances, like on day eleven right now, two, resume therapy with a professional. Three, called friends and family members to create a network of support. 
Four, checked out the dopey Zoom in evenings. Five, returned to a local 7 a.m. meeting. And six, cleaned up my sleep hygiene, among other things. I decided half measures will no longer do for me and vowed to build a life with more equanimity. So I am trying to break, take this up. I'm trying to take this break up to take my recovery to a next level. Thank you, Dopey Podcast. I have so much more work to do. P.S. At times I have survivor's guilt as I would not have heard about Dopey without Chris dying and the show hitting This American Life. Also, in reference to another listener's comment on earlier episodes who felt like the show had changed, I feel weird not being an original from the beginning. I feel like a bit of, I feel a little bit like a touch head finding the dead after touch of gray. Um, I think that's it. Is that it? Yeah. So what do you think? That's a nice email. Yeah, very nice. I had some survivor's guilt, too. Big time. How do you mean? So in my first year of sobriety, um, I got sober in October. My cousin died in a motorcycle accident in May. Then my best friend died of a drug overdose in July. And then my aunt died in a car crash in uh, August. And that was all after you got you, you had gotten sober? All in my first year of sobriety, yeah. After, this is the year plus because of the weed. You didn't count the weed in your, in your year. I didn't count that, no. Um, so it was like, every time I've started something new that's important, it's, it, it is always the hardest the first year. But that was the first time I ever experienced that. My first year of marriage was very hard, but it was also the first year that my wife's father was dead. You know what I mean? Right. You're doubling so, up on so, first years. So there. for her, it was really tough. My first year of you know doing the memes, really difficult. Really, I did not know how to handle anything, but you have to do it and figure it out, and you just got to get through those tough times. But the survivor's guilt, just when you stay sober long enough and you see other people do more than you've done in recovery and not make it, there's, you can't help but feel like, why me? Like, why am I still here? But instead of questioning it, um, I just appreciate it. Like, every single day that goes by now, I feel more and more like I'm reliant on God's grace and on borrowed time and take nothing for granted. It's been the opposite of what I thought it would be. I thought by the time I was sober for 18 years, I'd be chilling, good to go, totally relaxed about my sobriety. And I'm relaxed, but I'm, I'm diligent about it. I, I mean, I had I had a very similar moment this year. I just I just I just got five years, and I never came close to five years before. Yeah, it's you know, crazy. It, it's it was it's miraculous, and it's like it's like I'm a person that I'm a person that I always was, but I didn't really expect to get to be. Yeah. Um, but this last month, I've been struggling because I haven't been diligent with the with the with the program. I haven't been diligent in my recovery. I haven't been doing the work. So it's funny. When you say that, when I imagine having 18 years, I figured I'd be chilling. But when they say you only have today, that's what it means. Yeah. We only, I mean, and every day you got to put in the work. And the, I mean, you prove that with everything that you do. And it just so happens to be reality, yeah. which is annoying. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, coasting sounds like a really, like, fucking, be- I mean, I, I, you know, when you talked about smoking pot and that if, if, it, if it wasn't going to be, you know, alcoholically smoking pot maybe you could do it or whatever for me it's like i feel exactly the same way but like my life was so bad you know mm-hmm. for so long that i just can't put anything at risk yeah like i'm not even consider i don't it would put everything that i've built at risk and it's like you have 18 years you built an empire for yourself you've built a happy family you've built a career that's fun yeah you get to have a good time yeah, you get to crazy. use your brain and and yeah, 18 years isn't like coasting in recovery, but everything you've built is because these walls 
uh, are around it. You yeah. know, your your world inside those walls is so like fertile and happening. Yeah, and the and the recovery are the walls around it. Yeah, I've seen people do. I forgot exactly how I came to this conclusion, but I figured like, like people say, if you work hard, you'll succeed, right? Which is not always true. I don't necessarily believe in that. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't succeed, or your or your definition of success when you were working hard changes because it's not what you thought it was going to be. So with recovery, you know, they say um, um, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Okay, that might be true, but I have seen people fail who have thoroughly followed the path. Maybe it's rarely, maybe it's not, but I've never seen somebody make it who didn't follow the path at all. But they always say, when I, whenever I used to say that to somebody, yeah. they would go down this list and mm-hmm. say, well, does he go to meetings? Yeah. Is he sponsoring somebody? Uh, uh, does he talk to his sponsor every day? I, have you ever met anybody who did literally everybody, everything on the list and still fucked it up? So the thing is, like, we're, we're talking about time and days and stuff. I remember going through a tough time in my sobriety, and I met somebody who had two years at a meeting and I said to this person I was like oh man I wish I had two years and at the time I had like 14 years and I was like wait why did you just say that and it it, you know it made me aware of the fact that maybe my daily practices weren't so good like my sponsor went to the Hawaii convention when I first got sober and he told me that this guy stood up who went out after 25 years and he said he had too many years and not enough days and I just feel like maybe the person was doing that stuff at some point, but eventually they stopped. And it's so easy to get away from, you know, that feeling of appreciation and gratitude for sobriety. It's really, it's scarily easily. It's scarily easy. When you say it's like you're surprised at how much work it is at 18 years, it's the same work. Constant vigilance. Almost more. Almost more work. Like there's this guy in my group who... um, his sponsor asked him to go through the big book and find the most terrifying word in the book. Have you ever heard this before? No. So he's going through the book and he's like, you know, death, I don't know, jaywalker getting hit by the car, like despair, morass of self-pity, incomprehensible moral, like he doesn't know. And he goes, it's suddenly in the story about the book, uh, in the, the story about the guy who stops at the diner and puts the whiskey in the milk. He goes, that word suddenly can change everything right and it's the words you need to be the most aware of and the most vigilant about because suddenly happens suddenly seemingly without cause but when you look back obviously there's always a cause the problem not the problem but the thing about spiritual work when opposed to getting high is that the only way i can describe spiritual work is like one of those nights where you just drank and drank and drank and drank and drank and you couldn't get drunk and then all of a sudden at 2 a.m you're fucking shit-faced it all hits you at once that's what spiritual work is like. It doesn't take effect right away. But all of a sudden, before you know it, your wife does something that would normally piss you off, and you, and you handle angry. it like a champ. Exactly. It's like the Karate Kid. Yes. You know, wax on, wax yeah, that, on. It's the whole thing. The whole program is like the Karate Kid. Yeah. You're learning this stuff, and you don't know why or how or what, and then it shows up. Yeah. And I wish it showed up more for me. Like it doesn't. It's not showing up on time. Still, yeah. You know, it shows up later in the day mm-hmm. after the fucking terrible fight has happened, and I've thrown everything in the garage into the driveway, yeah. which was yesterday. Yeah. But it, in the night, it did come back. We yeah. came back. You know, so I cannot wait until 
you know, but it's never going to be exactly the way we want it to be. It's no, never going to be perfect. Because what you want changes. I want to not have problems. I don't want to have any problems. Why? I don't know. Because I, I, I'm tired of the problems, man. Your life would not be worth living without the problems. I want, listen, there's so many things I want. What do you want? What, what, what do I want? What do you want? Because, um, like, the Tank Sinatra brand is yeah. very fertile. Yeah. And is it still fun? Oh, yeah. Do you kill yourself trying to come up with funny memes? So this is another thing I hesitate to talk, to, to talk about because people get really belligerent about me saying this. But I've, I've never, I don't want to use the word hard, but I've never worked more than now, than what I do now. I mean, from the moment I wake up to the time I go to bed, I'm thinking about how can I make this better. Me too. And I have three pages going. So it's Tank Sinatra, Tank's Good News, and Influencers in the Wild. There's TV shows in the work, there's merchandise, there's other things in the works that I'm trying to get going. And I've never, like any job I ever had, I never thought about it more than a couple of minutes during the day. Even when I was at work, I was just a bad worker. So... I think people feel like... You weren't necessarily... You were an uninspired worker. Uninspired, okay. yeah. I was just trying to get through the day. I think people feel like if you don't... You don't have a real job unless you hate it. Right. That's unless what you're people really, think. Unless you're really like... Miserable. Yes. Um, that's, so, that's how my wife kind of looks at Dopey sometimes. Yeah. She sees me in the morning on the phone uh, about Dopey, and she thinks like I'm having a party when I'm really just trying to build this thing. Yeah, you don't have to hate your life to have a real job. Exactly. You don't. That's something that I learned in... I think conversations with God, he talks about, you know, being paid for what you're good at, using your gift, putting it out into the world and collecting money for it. That's ideal. That's best case scenario. And you're talking about like extreme entrepreneurship. And I know that you're a fan of Shark Tank. Yeah. And, uh, and you had Barbara Corcoran on your show. Yeah. Um, so you, th- and like, you're that kind of an entrepreneur. You wake up in the morning and you're all about your passion your product your business and you have to be patient too which is really tough because not everything moves at the speed of light that you that you know like you want it to people take time to get back to you things take time to create right you have processes to go through right um how comfortable are you with patience i'm i think i'm pretty good with patience i haven't hit a, a a point in this Situation that I'm in right now, financially or career-wise, where I've panicked and been like, "Oh fuck!" Every once in a while, I'll go on LinkedIn and be like, "Who's hiring?" You know, like maybe I'll get a job, and then I do that for five minutes. I say, "Any energy that I have, mentally, physically, spiritually, I want to put towards this to see how far I can take it, not sell myself short." I really want to see where this can go. And if you know, the way I feel is at the end of this, let's say Mark Zuckerberg goes, "Instagram's done. Everyone's done. You're all done." It's over. Facebook is done. We're shutting everything down. If that's what happens, A, apocalypse. B. (laughs) Mark Zuckerberg is my higher power. Yeah. (laughs) At the very least, I got to spend the the last four years with my kids when they were young. Like Missing their childhood is not going to be a part of my story in this lifetime. Right. Already. So everything else is just kind of like... And that's not happening. He makes too much money off of Instagram. Yeah, that's, it's not going to happen. But things do happen. But what I'm saying is like, I'm, every day that goes by, I'm like, this is just such a big win. This is a huge win for me already. So anything that comes above and beyond this is bonus. And I've been saying that for the last two years. Well, the best thing, it's like I, I, I talked to this writer, a guy named uh, Johan Hari, and he writes mm-hmm. about addiction. He writes about purpose. And, yeah. And... Uh, and there's been a lot of studies about, you know, 
how to get an addict to stop using. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of studies have shown that feeling like you have a purpose yeah. and that you have some joy yeah. are, are like great, you know, stop gaps with addiction. And it seems like your purpose and joy is like great. Yeah. And I know that for me, like, um, you know, I, I'm jealous of you. I'm envious of your success. You know what I'm saying? But I love what I'm doing, and, I, yeah. and I'm exactly the same way, that I wake up in the morning, and it's first to my head, and I want to see what can I do with it. And when you talk about looking for a job, but you want to see how far you can take it, I feel exactly the same way. And it, I'm, like, overjoyed that you decided to come out to Sayville and, and talk to us. Yeah, me too. You had a good time? Great time. First garage interview. First garage for, interview for me, too. I'm like the fucking Mark Maron to Sayville over here. Exactly. What the fuck? Um... I don't know. What? What? Did we leave any stone unturned? <sighs> yeah, lots of, of stones. Lots of stones. Sure. Lots of stones are left unturned. One thing I want to say, just real quick, in the the road less traveled. Have you ever read that before? No. By um, what was the first one? Napoleon Hill. What was the book? Think and Grow Rich. Think and Grow Rich. Think and Grow Rich. Um, which is so little about money and more about like just general success. Redirecting sexual energy outwardly. Yeah. Um, in The Road Less Traveled, the first line in the book is life is difficult, and the next two or three paragraphs go on to describe why that's a good thing. And like nobody since the beginning of time has had what anybody would call an easy life. There's varying degrees of difficulty, but if any person, push come to shove, had a choice between having an easy life and having a difficult life, if people are honest, they would choose the difficult life. Because the easy life is a boring fucking existence. You might as well be dead. If your life is easy, if you don't have problems to solve and purpose to fulfill, what are you doing? Right. It's a great puzzle. Yeah. And it's so fun. You obviously want better puzzles and better problems to solve. Right. Bigger and shinier puzzles. I don't mean to, yeah, I'm not saying like if you're getting beaten up at home, obviously that's a terrible problem and you should solve that a different way, not find a way to make peace with it. You should get out of it. But I'm saying like people, you know, my, my biggest problem, I remember at one point, this is why I hesitate to talk about how good my life is because I feel stupid. At one point, Tank's Good News was like, we were doing a bunch of shit with it. We were trying to do a bunch of shit. And I had to choose between partnering up with The Rock, partnering with Ellen, or partnering with Kristen Bell. And I was stressed out. And I said something to my wife and I just started laughing hysterically. I was like, this is not a problem. What well, is a problem. Who'd you pick? We picked The Rock initially. It didn't work out. Then I did stuff with Ellen. But the point is that like, these, are not, these are not what the world would consider problems. These are, these are situations that need to be addressed. What was the experience? No, I, I get it. Yeah. What was the experience of going on the Ellen show? I don't want to stop you. Now I've got questions again. Um, it was good. Ellen was good. It was not, listen, she's going through a whole bunch of shit right now publicly. Because How did that even happen? Because she's a human being and people are fucking sensitive, hateful, spiteful people. They and want I think, to knock her off the platform. Listen, I think that, first of all, you have to consider Ellen's life story if you're going to talk about her at all. And you have to, have you ever seen the Dave Letterman interview that she did with him? No. So in it, she talks about being raped repeatedly by her stepfather in her teenage years. On Dave Letterman. On, on the Dave Letterman Netflix show. Okay. So it's like an hour long interview. She gets really into it. So not into the details of the rape. I'm saying like her life and what it's been like to be her. She has not had an easy life. 
if you like Jay-Z has a, a, a great line about he goes it's tough being Bobby Brown to be Bobby then you got to be Bobby now so Bobby Brown in the 80s was on top of the world fast forward 20 years later his wife dies his daughter dies he's broke like you can't pick and choose pieces of somebody's life that you want to trade with you either got to take it all or take none of it so Ellen if you want to trade places with her now because she's rich and famous and whatever you gotta, you gotta endure take her history. That, that exactly. You gotta endure the pain of coming out and being ostracized by the industry and losing your career. Then you gotta endure the pain of being too gay and then not being gay enough because you had Kevin Hart on your show. And you just gotta endure all that. So the fact that she's not super cordial to people that she doesn't need to be super cordial to does not surprise me, and I don't fault her for it. It's none of our business anyway. I, I mean, like exactly. You know, I, I personally like I like Alan. I don't know Alan, and that's as far as it goes. Like, yeah. I, I'm a dick sometimes, and sometimes I'm How not. A dick. You, of course, you are because you're a human being. Let me ask you this though, because yeah. I think it's interesting. Your your platform is is tremendous, but you live in Suffolk County, New York. Yeah, you know, and you have a very like sort of normal, excuse me, normal life. It's like when does your fame touch the world? Or, and does it at all? And if it does, how does it? What do you mean? Like, the people- like, like you know, you're, you have this crazy platform, but you're not in front of the camera most of the time. Yeah. So, like, do you, do you feel the fame out in the world, or do you feel like you're kind of undercover? Um, it depends. I feel like I'm undercover until someone says, hey, are you Tank Sinatra? Right. And then I feel like I'm famous. Right. And then as soon as they're done talking to me, I don't feel famous anymore. Right. But you don't ever feel famous it's not when I wanted to be famous growing up. I thought when somebody came up to me and knew who I was that I didn't know, I was going to orgasm everywhere. Right. But that's that wasn't the case. It was more of a feeling like if your wife has a friend who you've never met and you meet them and they go, "Oh, I've heard a lot about you." Right. Right. It's right, that right. feeling. It's just more when if you're any level of fame, you're only as famous as however many people know you that you don't know. Which for me is less. Justin Bieber is more, varying degrees of fame in the middle. But I remember going to California with my wife. We went to go, we went on the set of Extra to visit Mario Lopez because he was like one of my first celebrity supporters. We went out there to meet him, and I was excited to be at the show. I wasn't on the show, but I was excited to be at the show because I thought I was going to see celebrities and superstars and whatever. And all three people he interviewed, I had no idea who they were. And I was like, these people are on Extra? I don't even remember who it was, but I was like, that, that's interesting because I would think that once you're famous, you're famous to everybody, but you're not. I get you. I you totally know? get you. It's just, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting though thing. You know, I mean, I think that whole Ellen interview was like so big Yeah. and then you come back yeah. and you keep going. Most of the time it's good, especially cause tanks good news. Most of the time it's like, you know, people saying, I, I really love what you do. I love your page. I appreciate you taking time to put this stuff out there. It's almost always positive. In person, I've never had somebody say anything negative. The worst thing about the Ellen thing is like how enjoyable it is to watch. Yeah. That's the worst thing about it. And I don't mean your appearance. I mean people talking shit about a- Ellen. Yeah. I, I mean, I like Ellen. I've always like enjoyed Ellen or, or not cared. Yeah. You know, uh, the best, best case scenario I like or worst case scenario, I don't really care. Whatever. Yeah, don't think about it. But then when people talk shit, it was so titillating and exciting. Yeah. And like, 
I mean, if somebody says I'm not a good interviewer, somebody just left me a bad review the other day. I'm like, hurt. Poor Ellen. Half the fucking universe is now coming down on her head like she's the Antichrist. And here I'm sitting back like eating popcorn. This is funny. Yeah. But it's just like weird perspective stuff. Yeah. You know. Anyway, I'm sure that wasn't the deepest thing you've ever heard about anything. But it was 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 really a great joy for me to have you come through. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. And, um, And let's do it again. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about recovery? Oh, you know what? Did yeah. You, one thing that I always fuck up with, and it's terrible that I, I do this to the guests constantly, is we like dopey stories, you know, yeah. fucked up drug stories. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, here you've been here forever. You want to tell a dopey story before you go? I don't I, put you on the I, spot. I will tell a somewhat dopey story. Um, I was walking through Manhattan with my friend Adam. And we were going, we were, for some reason, we were reliving the old days, right? And he's like, oh, I used to go to this bar over here, and then I'd go to this apartment over here, get cocaine, and then I'd go to this place over here, blah, blah, blah. And I said, it was when I used to go out back, you know, back then, I used to go to this place called the Sound Factory. Sure. And I used to do drugs at Exit and Sound Factory. And I said to him, off the cuff, I said, you know what the best feeling I ever had was? And he goes, what? And I said, doing ecstasy and smoking weed in the sound factory and he goes so cavalier he goes "Eh, it's probably just the best feeling you had up to that point in your life (laughs) and I was like holy shit you're right because I can romance that because that feeling that physical sensation of being on ecstasy and smoking pot is just a feeling of like complete physical euphoria and bliss right Yes, yes however when he said that I thought of the time that I held my son in my arms and it literally felt like my heart was singing. They're not comparable, the two. If, I, if something happened today and I felt like I was on ecstasy and smoking pot, I would call a hospital. You'd <laughs> be in big trouble. If, somebody, if, like some, if that was a natural reaction to anything, if that was a re- natural reaction to seeing my son score a goal, I'd be like, oh, shit, something's wrong. So I, don't, I, I guess I don't value the highs of drugs anymore at all because I know that the highs of life are so much more real and long-lasting and earned which feels better. No, I get it. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Um, but the joy of a good dopey story is always fun. Yeah. Um, and I like that story. You yeah. Know, I, I think it's funny. And um, I think uh, it was great to have you here. You know, I, I really enjoyed talking recovery and stuff. And, yeah. and I'm glad you're our neighbor. Yes. I think that's cool. Yeah. Although it's very uncomfortable for me to be a Long Islander, which I am now. You are. It's weird. It is what it is. It is fucking odd, you know, <laughs> but it is what it is. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris, and thank you, Tank and George. Toodles for Tank. Toodles for Tank. You have to yeah. say toodles for Chris, because it's for Chris. Oh, toodles for Chris. Yeah, that'll be bad. Oof, you get sorry. a lot of anti-Dopey Nation stuff. Sorry, guys. Toodles for Chris. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. But before we go, I want to get my dad on the phone. I want to do a Dopey review of the week, and I want to go over this Patreon business with him for you guys. Hello? Hey, Dad. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm actually sitting in the car. Welcome back to the show. Ah, oh, it's good. It's good to be back. I feel it's like I haven't back. talked to you in like two weeks. What have you been doing? Well, you know, I don't know. I've, I've been busy doing schoolwork and walking, and my back is killing me. And I made an appointment for an orthopedic guy. Uh, but you're the one who's been busy. You never answer the phone or anything. What do you mean I don't answer the phone? When do I not answer? I always answer the phone. Oh, uh, that's 
and your mailbox is always full. Anyway, you seem to be very, very busy. This Patreon thing is going, uh, going cuckoo. Well, check it out. That's it's interesting you brought that up. Do you yeah. understand what's happening with Patreon? Because I think I need to explain it to you, and maybe the Dopey Nation can understand it as well. Should I explain yeah. it to you? I think I think it's really necessary because it certainly sounds confusing to me. Yes. All right. So for two bucks, you get access to the three mini Patreon episodes during the month. All right. For yeah. for five bucks, you get to go to the Dopey Patreon Zoom that I host. So you're gonna have and to. When does that, that happen? Uh, tomorrow night, actually. And that's once a month. Once a month. The Dopey Patreon Zoom. Tomorrow night it will be a fireside chat, a metaphorical fireside chat, on the state of the Dopey Nation. Uh-huh, right. So the only way that I could do that is if I contributed five bucks. That is, is that it? Yes. Or more. Or for the $10 tier, Dad. You know what you get for the $10 tier? I can't wait to hear. What do you get? For the $10 tier... The newest thing that's going to happen in Dopey is that every month we're going to do an extra full-length episode, a fifth Dopey episode. And if you're in the $10 pay tier, you get access to that episode 30 days earlier than the rest of the poor schlubs who do not pay. You also get... Shush. You also get a Dopey sticker pack and are entitled to any new Dopey stickers that might be coming out. Right. All right. I don't understand that. If you're going to give it a, if you're going to put it on in the fifth week, I don't understand why is that. Why would somebody want to listen to it anyway? Dad, Dad, you you don't understand spending money on anything. You buy cereal if it's if it's a dollar, and if it's uh even if it's expired, you'll spend money. Money. I don't buy. You're very frugal. This is not for for a frugal person. This is for somebody first of all who wants to support the show. Correct. Yeah. Which is well, obviously That's obviously That's not good. you. I think the show sounds good to me. Yes. I mean, you really are not. It's counterproductive. It's not very intuitive. I'm trying to build a pay thing, and you're telling people not to pay. I I, I was just wondering uh, wondering about it, but you're right. The people who want to hear it, that's very important. This is yeah. just terrible salesmanship, Dad. <laughs> I'm sorry. So you're saying Sorry. that you shouldn't join at the $10 tier. You should skate by and join at the $5 tier, or maybe not join at all. You say, fuck it. No, no, absolutely not. No, of course not. Of course not. Because I think, no, it's important that people support the show, and those people who want to spend the, the 10 bucks, that's, that's like nothing for the year. Come on, $10 a month is pennies a day. Pennies a day. So now you're trying to sell it. It sounded much more genuine when you were asking why people should pay. No, no, I'm being I'm being very genuine now. I think the Dopey Nation should support Patreon, and you should support it as best as you can. Obviously, people who can afford the pennies a day for ten dollars a month should be able to do it, and they and they will get that that extra bonus. Absolutely. The really messed up thing is my wealthy father, who stays at an opulent lake house many months of the year, who comes and goes as he pleases, complained about joining at the $2 level. Well, you, you, 
I didn't complain. I thought I thought it was really unfair to charge one's father for it. I mean, that's what I thought. But that that's just my opinion. On if, that. if I knew if I knew how to give it away uh, to you, I would have. I have no. What do you want me to send you a special file, Dad? No, no. Here's the deal. I, listen, the real thing is, was I thought you should have figured it out. Isn't it better that I give you money directly and not through Patreon? Isn't there some fee you have to pay Patreon or something? Well, That's you should just point. you should just give me money directly, but I can't give you Patreon unless you're a patron. Well, that's why I, I signed up for the two bucks. But you're not going to... Now, all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, you're getting me thinking I should sign up for the $5 and then, and then the $10 one. I mean, you're, you're trying to sell me now. Pennies on the day. Pennies yeah, a day. Anyway, yeah, so there's two other things to talk about. We have oh, wait a minute. What about this opulent... Yeah, what about the, that one-star review where they were talking about the wealthy family? Yeah, that's what I wanted to read you. Hold on. I'm going to read you that review. I read it more than once. Here we go. It's from VC at O, uh, and she says, I assume it's a woman for some reason, but maybe it's a guy. Since when is recovery so funny? I've tried to get behind the total idiot banter and the constant hints that the host is from a prominent wealthy family. How's that? Dad? You feel like we're a prominent wealthy family? I think they're talking about, about Chris. I you don't think, think so? You don't think our family is prominent and wealthy? Uh, I know we're not. <laughs> yeah. we, we might we might not be prominent, but I think, you know, come on. Um, which part of that statement will enable, which part of that statement will enable recovery for others? I am struggling daily, have awesome support, faith, and so far it's okay. Just that. Welcome to staying and working in the deli. Give me a break. I honestly don't understand the review. Do you understand it? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I do understand it. All right, here's what I understand. Uh, whoever the person is, uh, is is not in a good place, and she she needs some help. She needs some support. She needs to, to, to you know, to get better. And she's almost saying she does not want you to succeed. She, she's saying, or he is saying, that the heck with you getting out of the bill. So that basically, I, she's wondering, why should I give 5 or $10 a day? Exactly. Like that you. Just that. like it sounds maybe you wrote the review. Yeah, but she also made another good point about the, the, the addiction isn't funny. And you know, I don't think it's so funny either. Uh, and you know, a lot of, quote, the parents and the sisters and the brothers, etc., don't think it's that funny, except for sure. Dopey Nation is terrific. And, and you, you guys have helped so many other people. So Do you think last, let's, just calm down for a second? Yeah, Do you think yeah. that I think addiction is funny? Of course not. I don't think you think it's funny. I think you think the stories are funny after somebody is better. I think that there are funny aspects to everything. I think addiction is sad and torturous. Uh, obviously, I've lost a lot of people to addiction. Obviously, I went through hell in addiction, but I don't see. Uh, I mean, I think there's probably something wrong with my brain that I can't look at uh, a situation and not try to find a funny aspect of it. It's just the well, way I that, deal with that. that. Well, that, I mean, there, there, may, <laughs> there may be something wrong with your brain, but I think that's a good good attitude, though, to find find some humor in things and uh, and keep moving forward. Yeah, I think that's important. In, her, in the reviewer's case, I think she's having problems now. I mean, it, same with that Kat Marnell thing. I mean, I think people need help 
etc. And when they when they say things that aren't aren't nice, uh, somehow you got to turn the other cheek and keep moving. I mean, somehow you got to you got to keep going forward and uh, and and make the show as good as you can make it and help as many people, including yourself. That's and wait a minute, you have you have a sponsee now? Is that is that true? I have a sponsee, sixty-two year old man. So how is that working? It's working great. I I, ah. I think I think all the conversations I used to have with you, I'm now having with him. Hey, well, wait a minute. What am I, chopped liver? I mean, I'm supposed to be you're supposed to be talking to me too. <laughs> well, he reaches out to me a lot more than you do. He doesn't I'm, he doesn't complain well, that my answering machine is full. He just reaches out, Dad. So you know, you know why so he wants he wants my wisdom and my care. Hold on, Dad. Did you hear yeah. of, there's this movie on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. Did you hear of it? Yeah, everybody's talking about it. It's about saying bad things about Facebook and all those social media things. It's about addiction to social media. And even though, yes, you are old and over the hill, I think you might be also one of these people addicted to social media. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I I look at it, but I certainly try very not, not. I don't respond. The only thing I do is wish people happy birthday. That's pretty much what I do. You do two things. You wish people happy birthday, and you lurk in the background, hopelessly addicted to social media. That's so nonsensical. I, I try to listen to all the reviews, and I listen to the stuff. Uh, I, I try to listen to everything about Dopey, even though now it may cost me a few bucks a month. But I listen to I listen to everything, you know, the Twitter stuff. Uh, I just try to see, I try to be uh, aware of what's going on with Dopey. That's what I'm trying to do. Pennies on the day. Pennies a day. Yeah, I heard that. Listen. Yeah, somebody keeps saying that. Listen, uh, are you watching the stupid uh, Dopey film challenge on Twitter? Ruining my I life? Under- I don't understand that either. Well, how, how are the people have all this time to watch movies? I don't know. I I I haven't watched a movie in years, but follow the Dopey Film Picks Challenge on Twitter. Uh, You know, I wish you luck in your social media addiction. Uh, I want to know what the Dopey Nation thinks about social media addiction. It's not as bad as full on drug addiction, that's for sure. Follow us on Instagram if you're not willing to give up social media yet. Follow us on Facebook. Fucking follow us on Reddit. Thank you to Cormac. Thank you to Misty for all of your bootleg stickers and your ranting and raving this week on Facebook. I love that. Congratulations to Amber for four years clean. Congratulations to original dopey fan John is ham on Instagram, also with four years. Congratulations to Rebecca from the Solution is Tacos podcast. She has seven months and a spanking new butterfly tattoo if you want to hear your clean time send in an email the week of the show we will get to you if i am prodigious i don't know if that's the right word if i'm conscientious that's the right word you want to say a nice goodbye to the dopey nation dan yeah of course everybody stay stay safe out there and uh toodles for chris stay strong dopey nation and fucking toodles for chris and i love you dad and thank you for calling in All right, I love you too. And drive safe. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times. And Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, 
I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjo. This thing's hard to keep in tune. y'all hear this makes it through the uh, big inbox emails feel free to play a clip on the show if you want I, if not I know it kind of sucks alright uh, really appreciate it thanks y'all